What's happening, weirdos? This is a, a very, very exciting episode for me. This is Matt Johnson. Katie, our producer, the wonderful Katie Levine, for years has been telling me about Nirvana, the band, the show, uh, which is a Canadian television show that Matt co-created. And uh, boy, I wish I had listened to her sooner. It is my current obsession. I also love the movie, as you guys know, Blackberry, which Matt uh, directed, and it is incredible. And he is incredible. And what follows is a very inspiring and interesting conversation about film, creativity in general, inspiration, drive. I took a lot of notes from this episode, and it really sort of lit a fire under me in terms of some of the things that I'm trying to create. So if you have some endeavor uh, that you've been pursuing and have been looking for some motivation, uh, this is the episode for you. He's deeply funny, deeply thoughtful, and so intelligent. I'm so glad you guys are here. Check out Blackberry. Check out Nirvana, the band, the show. And uh, I'm so glad you're here to check out this episode. Only a couple things to plug up top. It's all at PeteHolmes.com. The 30th of January, I'll be at Largo, largo largo-la.com for tickets to that. We do that show in LA once a month. This next one is going to be a big one. I'm very excited for it. We also have a couple shows on PeteHolmes.com. We have Chicago is up for sale. We have a night in Oxnard. We have a night at the Irvine Improv, all in California. And then we have the Netflix is a Joke Festival, which I'll be doing as well. So check all of those tour dates out. It's a new hour. I'm very excited about it. If you haven't seen the old hour, it's on Netflix right now. It's called I Am Not For Everyone. Please check that out. And if you like this show, please try a Pete's Pick, meaning... We only do ads for things that I actually use and absolutely love, like our friends at Living Libations. Living Libations is a high-end, badass, highly effective, natural skin care, hair, teeth, babies, whatever your needs are in the health and beauty department, whether it's uh, skin care, like I use their best skin ever, uh, moisturizer at night. I also put it on during the day. Val also uses that and loves it. We put uh, Love the Sun zinc-based sunblock on Leela in the sunny times of the year. That is a huge game changer. It's so hard to find an actually natural alternative to the chemical nightmares that they have out there because obviously what we're putting on our body gets in our body. So we should be careful to buy products that are amazing, living libations, and have ingredients that we can easily pronounce and recognize. That is also living libations. Great way to support the show, get something small, or do what Val and I did, which is a total medicine cabinet, beauty cabinet, bathroom overhaul, uh, and replace all of those horrible products that are filled with toxic chemicals that were never intended for humans. 15% off, go to livinglibations.com slash weird. Support the show, support your body. That's livinglibations.com slash weird. It's also brought to us from our friends at Onnit and Alpha Brain. You guys know this by now. I'm obsessed with Alpha Brain. It is a nootropic, which means it helps with memory, focus, and concentration. Every episode of this podcast for the past all 700 episodes, I've always, always, always taken two or three Alpha Brain about 15 minutes before we started rolling. Also, anytime I'm doing stand-up, anytime I'm writing a script, I really wish I had known about it when I was in college or taking tests. I take it before I read books just to retain more of it. Basically, anything you're doing that involves your brain, involves focus, concentration, and memory, 
Alpha Brain is not a stimulant. It's not like coffee. It's giving you earth-grown ingredients to help you concentrate. It is amazing. Give it a try. It's the best way to know if you'll love it like I do. Go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird, and you will get 10% off everything on that landing page. That's onnit.com slash weird. All right, everybody. See you out there on the road. Enjoy Matt Johnson. Check out everything he's ever done. He's amazing. You're about to see. Get into it. You're in uh, Winnipeg right now. Buddy. That's where my family uh, immigrated to, from Iceland. Iceland to Winnipeg? Well, they're very similar. There's a huge Icelandic population in Winnipeg where you are right now. Is that real? Huge, 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 huge. I'm not shocked. It is. Uh, where are you? You're in a. You're Toronto. In an attic. Oh, Toronto. I'm in an attic at in the, our production house in Toronto. I am sorry. I have to apologize. Before we started recording, I screamed at you, <laughs> and I have to because you started talking. And I said, "Don't talk," and I have to give you a disclaimer. I've been watching. For, it's such a pleasure to meet you. You I'm, too. I'm such a huge fan of yours, and in my defense, I've been watching. I have a day off here, and I've been watching Nirvana the band, the show. And what, is, what episode are you up to? I'm on season two, episode three or four, Mrs. Doubtfire. Have you have you watched the Mrs. Doubtfire episode? No, I'm I'm I, you just got the Uber Eats order and you answered the phone. It's my it's my favorite it's my favorite thing I've ever done in my life. That specific episode is for me the best thing I probably will ever do in my whole career. Are you shitting me? I wish no. I had finished it. I was literally. I'll tell you, well, I closed the window, but I'm like, probably, well, that's like, what, halfway in? Nah, yeah, you you just you just passed like Matt's big dilemma, which is that Jay wants him to appear as both Tony and Matt, just like in the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, where Robin Williams has to go to this dinner both as himself and as Mrs. Doubtfire, otherwise he's going to lose this big job. And Matt has, without meaning to put himself in the exact same situation of doing this plan at the Rivoli, where he needs to be both Matt and Tony. Otherwise, Jay will not be happy. Yeah, yeah. I won't ruin it. I won't ruin it. I'm noticing that the that the light next to me is is just behaving all kinds of crazy. So yeah, I wouldn't. There. Yeah, it it looks great. But to finish my apology, you, I'm alone, day off, and all I've been doing is watching that show, other than like a little fitting that I did. So that's the human interaction I've had. And really, I want to give you a compliment. <laughs> Is that not only has it just been delighting me, like I'm alone in this sort of, not to say Winnipeg is sad, but you know, it's kind of no, no, I know all about it. I and know I'm all sort about of it. locked in, and my family yeah. left this well, morning. Well, the completely bare tree behind you is telling yeah. a huge story. And, <laughs> and the symbolism of it is gorgeous. And there's a convalescent home across the street, which is actually. I, uh... <laughs> I didn't know we still called them convalescent homes, but Winnipeg is very on the nose. It's a convalescent home. Yeah. Um, so here's what I'm trying to say is that like, first of all, I I, I fucking love it. Um, I got introduced to you by Glenn Howerton because I love Blackberry. It's fucking incredible. We can get to that. But my producer, Katie, was like, you got to watch that show. So I'm so glad I am watching it. And even after we chat, I'm going to keep watching it, which is the only true compliment, right? I couldn't agree more. Right? I couldn't agree more. It's but, not yeah. research. I'm fucking dying laughing, loving everything about it. Um, but here, here's the apology is it got my silly beans from zero to 100. So you're talking to a guy who's been watching you only be 
Matthew character. So I'm like, oh, I'll just go in at 10. So I need to check myself after I've wrecked myself. But that's why I screamed at you. You know, funny, believe it or not, I'm sure you deal with this in your life all the time. Because I think you and I are kindred spirits in a way. I, I oddly think we almost I, look like family. I like agree. We, 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 yeah, I'm, we I'm have so a, there. We have a similar, I don't know what it is. It's the yes. visage. If you saw us at a distance, you'd be like, ah, like we, should, yeah. we could play brothers in a film. And I think it would be a great movie. I but agree. You, you probably, um, I, I don't want to use the word suffer, but you probably have the same uh, dilemma that I often have in public, which is that I'm not sure what you're like uh, as, as an individual, but I'm a little bit uh, introverted and and kind of quiet. And when people meet me in real life and they only know me from my work, Buddy. I always find them, their eyes kind of sink as they realize it's almost like they're meeting my twin brother. Do you oh. know what I mean? They're like, you can't be him like whatever you are is not what i like (laughs) i am thrilled and buddy that's what just happened to you and i even sort of gave myself the note like don't do that because you're right that does happen to me because of the batman videos and stuff people come up to me of course they say ass mouth vag and i'm like i'm with my daughter (laughs) or whatever you know you know but like I am, you saw me raise my hand. I'm deeply introverted. Um, I, I'd like to ask you, what what's your response? I feel like I'm a cat who learned how to do an impression of a dog. And when I watch uh, you on Nirvana, the band, the show, you're sort of, I think why where you're getting kindred spirits is you're doing what I do. Meaning I think the funniest thing I do is like, let it off the leash and sort of go nuts. You know what I mean? Big and wild. And then when I'm private, I go back into cat. But I do a a pretty good dog. And that is an aspect of me. But I feel more like a, like usually with a day off like today, I'm like rubbing my hands together like a a delicious meal. And I can't wait to be quiet and kind of. Alone. Yeah, alone. And recharge. you, You recharge like that? Tell me what that made you think. I was gonna. Well, let me look at where I am. Yeah. This is where I spend most of my time in a gigantic empty attic. By myself. So you you didn't clean this up for the shot? No. It's just sparse. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, this is uh, like like an office at the same time, but this is, it's great. You get to be quiet. It's wonderful. What I was going to say is that um, what I see in a lot of your performance is a, which is what I see in a lot of the best comedians is a return to a kind of uh, innocent childhood like the way a child would approach things the way a child would see things yes. and then and then doing that through it's why i love um uh, uh movies or television where where it, 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 and it's why i play this myself where it's like an adult man but who's seeing things with the optimism and the naivety of a boy who knows nothing and doesn't understand yeah. consequences yeah. and i think that i'm i'm very good at tapping into that but then in real life i'm so the exact opposite in blackberry it, uh this this anecdote is haunting me, which is that everybody who doesn't know me, who sees me uh, in public is like, oh my gosh, you're exactly like the character you play. It's crazy. I can't believe how much in real life you are like this guy. And then all my friends, the people who've known me since I was a kid, who would see me and talk about the film and be like, oh my God, Matt, I can't believe how much you're like Jim. I can't believe how much you are like the character that Glenn plays. And so wow. like that- I re- that's brilliant. I relate to his 
I sort of have to repress, but delight in Glenn's character, who's like a hothead, almost like a, a Bill Burr type. I'm drawn to those guys that are just like, Me too. shut the fuck up, shut the fuck Like when he goes, <laughs> when he's on the call about the modems and he goes and he hangs up, I get like the biggest movie boner from moments like that, where I'm like, that energy is so essential to getting things done. And I, and I have that, I have this, like, and I know you have that as a filmmaker. It's like, just fucking do it. Just fucking do it. Run on the subway, run on the subway or whatever. Yes, exactly. 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 Other people who don't know what I mean, you, you, you were talking about, you go for forgiveness over permission. You ran on the subway. I was watching. I also watched some, it's very hard to find Matt. Uh, So I couldn't find season one. And I ended up watching some, fan-made best of stuff so i saw some and interviews with you and when i watched the clip of you guys running through the subway i was legit like afraid (laughs) i I, like that you would touch the third rail and and i i just to kind of load you i saw you talking about like yeah things that haven't been done before haven't been done for a reason and if you could marry that into forgiveness permission just I think filmmakers would love to hear you talk a little about that. Yeah, well, in some ways, that became my sort of de facto philosophy behind making anything, which is that when I was in film school, because I went to a Canadian film school and because Canada generally, I mean, you're in Winnipeg right now, so maybe you're feeling this a little bit, is a very risk-averse country, and we're in a very risk-averse system, which in some ways... it's it's the opposite of America. Blackberry, that movie is a little bit about this tension as well, where mm. it's very rare in Canada for people to just say fuck it and do things, for mm. them to be like, I'm gonna do this and I and 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 damn the consequences. And because of that, we have a very strict set of imposed and implied tacit rules that that people play within. And in film school, I really felt this. I really felt like a, like simple things like you can't, you always need to have a very strict script before you shoot anything. You can't shoot anything in public. You can't shoot anything with real people. Can't film with animals. Can't film with, film with children. Like things that are almost, if you're in the film business, like you hear these things as maxims. But I thought of all these things as, oh, I'm going to try to do work that is only doing those things simply because nobody else is doing them. Mm. And so if I get lucky and it works, then I'll be the only person. This is me thinking as like a 20 year old kid, right? I'll be the only person who has done it. And I think for any young people who is trying to do anything, not just film, as I've matured, I've realized that this is a decent philosophy for, for most practices is that the things that are not allowed or the things that are even slightly verboten, if you flip any set of rules over, there's a map on the other side. Mm. And that map is towards gold that nobody has gotten to because everybody stops at the rules and is like, okay, yeah, well, we can't do that. Yeah. Um, it, it also with things like copyright infringement or fair use, like even getting granular around like what legally you can and can't do. I find that there's a, there's a path forward where it's like, oh, nobody knows how to do this because they all think they'll get in trouble if they do. Right. It's just, but- it's, and it's free and it's free. Yeah. But those become the markers. Like if I I also saw you, like if it's uncomfortable, that's a good touchstone of like, we're into something novel. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world, people aren't doing it. So you should, you should do that. It also brings to mind, like, like I think it was Chaplin, not Buster Keaton with the house. Maybe it was Buster Keaton, the house. That's Buster Keaton. That's Buster Keaton. Yeah. The Buster Keaton shot is a famous shot where the house falls and, you know, they had to, 
do it to the millimeter so it wouldn't kill him. It reminds me of that. And there, there's almost something silent filmy about your look too, as Matt in Nirvana, the suit and the hat. It's, is that any sort of a, a reference for you? Vaudeville, big time. Like I, like I, that's almost like an, uh, like the anachronism of those guys is that that they seem in such a state of arrested development, kind of locked in the '90s, but with the aesthetic and mindset of, uh, yeah silent yeah. era cinema um yes but but it, it, again i was so young when i was putting that together that all these things were happening subconsciously it's not like i was thinking oh these are vaudeville guys and this is their right. color scheme and this is how they behave it was it was really just like kind of getting lucky and then iterating on it right i i'm a big believer in that too is like if you consume iphone 66 entered the waiting room is that somebody with you no Boop. <laughs> It's like a horror movie. Who is trying to enter our room? Really? Yeah, somebody's in the waiting room. I don't know why it's making me scared. I know why it's scared. They're named iPhone 66. It must just be a mistake. Um, They can stay in the waiting room. When you consume and when your life just is about certain stuff, you don't have to make an effort to infuse those things into your work. So yeah, I think that's one of the big secrets of, of almost any art discipline as well is to try to watch and do as much as you can. The worst thing you can do is just like nothing, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, like playing the same video games or watching the same movies over and over and over again, because you don't realize that you're going to, especially when you're young, because by the time you're old, I'm not sure if you feel this way at all. Like you get to a certain age, I had a teacher named uh, Max Layton who told me in high school, who is like, well, I'm at the age where I feel as though I've read enough and I've watched enough and I don't really need to watch anymore. And I feel wow. like, like that the older I got, the less interest in watching new movies I became, the less interested in, in uh, reading new books I became. It, it was like a real effort for me to, to consume new stuff. And so much of my personality is based on these touchstone things from the nineties and I was happening by accident, but, but I'm kind of stuck with these references. Like I'm stuck with them in a way. So are you saying you don't really watch new stuff? I don't watch new stuff as much as I did. Yeah. Not even close, not even close. I was yeah. like a voracious cinephile when I was younger. I watched literally everything. And now it, it's, it's, it's a cruel irony that you wind up like working so much or working on your own stuff so much that you just don't it seems like such a crazy indulgence to like go to a movie theater and watch new movies or even to watch links of movies. You're like, Oh God, wouldn't it be great if yeah. I could, if I, if I could do that, but that might, may just be me. I don't know. You know, I've always been of the mind as a stand up and as, you know, a creator in different ways that if I like it, meaning my audience is growing in the same way, meaning uh-huh. I love, I love Blackberry. Blackberry is not like, um, Iron Man. I, Iron Man's a great movie. I'm not. I'm not trying to poo-poo modern. Not, that's not even modern. But you know what I mean. Avengers Endgame. But like, it reminds me of what I think. It's modern in certain ways, but it's also it feels like a movie to me. Does that make sense? Like it. It feels like how movies that I remember feel. So yes. there's. If I like it, there's an audience for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, just basically following your own instincts to the point where you feel like you must be right because you like it. That's something I've 
guilty of every single day. Yeah. The worst but- is when you've got an idea and it's like you're in a pitch room or something like that. And you're working with your team and you're like, I can't, it's, it's like the, the Supreme court's definition of pornography, you know, you can't explain it, but you know it when you see it, it's like, yeah. you just know that something is good and you can't explain why it's good. Yeah. That, that's, that's a tough one. Did you as a stand-up comedian? I guess you don't have to worry about that. Well, you get the feedback. It's funny. You could you could think of stand-up as a pitch meeting every show. But I, I kind of like to soften that and think of it as we're we're co-creating it with the audience. And I'm assuming you have that with screenings and stuff that that moments Absolutely. you can feel them glazing over or they're or they're just not responding like you thought they would. Is that Accurate. You know, instantly it's, uh, it's crazy. One of the, one of the, the, the great tricks about test screenings is that oftentimes you hold them hoping to get feedback and people will give you what they think afterwards. If you sit in a screening, you don't need any feedback at all. Yeah. You know, you everything. Feel the, the frequency you, re- you read everybody's mind as it's happening. And, yeah. and I, uh, I think screenings are very important because you can do so few of them and have them still seem fresh, but it's like that's another one of the free tools that filmmakers have. Like it's yeah. funny how similar that is to stand-up comedy. Where it is. You just you just know instantly. Mind you, the difference is you're not actually standing there. I when I was quite young, I tried doing stand-up comedy, and this is when I was in my like arrogant young man phase, <laughs> and I was 16 or 17 years old, and I flew to San Francisco to do open mic shows there because I was too shy to do them in Toronto, and it was so painful, so painful. <laughs> One of those painful things I've ever experienced in my life. Did you? Where did you go up? Was it at the clubs or was it bars? Yeah, yeah. Where any every every place that had an open mic, I just went to every single one. I was there for a week, and every single day I did like two or three of them. Wow! And it didn't bite you. Yeah, no, I would say that's literally what it did. It like bit me so hard I wanted to die. Oh, I, like I it, mean, like it, the it, bug, it, like it didn't. No, no, I knew what you, you meant. I knew. What <laughs> you meant. No, it was the opposite. It was the opposite. In fact, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to love this. This is going to be so great." And I didn't realize how much of it was your ability to withstand failure live. Yeah. And it seems as though every comedian who's made it has withstood, whether they've known it or not, so much failure that then by the end of it you wind up with only the best stuff. It's like you're editing a movie, but the movie's you. Yeah. But then there's casualties to that. When watching anything that you've made that I've seen, what I like about television and film is that you can, you have a little bit more authority in a sense. Like I used to say on stage, one of my save lines was I, I I'd do a joke. It wouldn't work. And I'd go, I really envy like people in a play and and if you say something and it's not funny, they give you the benefit of the doubt. They're like, oh, maybe that's like a theme, or maybe that maybe it's trying to be dramatic. But like no, every know, line has to work. And and what I love about like okay, so I was just watching Nirvana, uh, the band, the show. So I'll stick to that. It's like you get to kind of introduce them to a different vocabulary, meaning like this is the way this show is funny and you, you almost have to catch up to it. So when I watch the utilitarian sort of pragmatic nature of standup, it can kill some really, really hilarious and interesting things because you just want to get the laugh. To a laugh. Yes. And, it, and it sort of neuters a lot of really, a lot of like some of the most brilliant people I saw in the first 10 years of standup aren't doing it anymore. And I don't say that to say they failed or anything. I'm saying that to say like the, the grind of it 
failed them. The the process of it failed them. Well, do you know about this uh, biological um, evolutionary biological concept called uh, low adaptive peak? It's a really interesting idea. Do you, do you ski? Have you ever been skiing before? I can't ski. Like downhill I, skiing. I, I I've it's done okay. It once. The, 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 you know, the metaphor will work. Okay? okay. So a low adaptive peak is a concept in biology where a species um, figures out how to survive some environmental problem, but with the lowest possible adaptive mm. sophisticated um uh tool so in downhill skiing it would be like when people snowplow and they ski like that well that will get you down the hill but it's not ideal skiing right but you can stop there because you're like okay great i learned how to get down the hill perfect and so this is how you ski for the rest of your life and with stand-up comedy there's this kind of like okay i gotta get a joke how can i get a joke how can i get a laugh oh, i gotta laugh like this and because of that you wind up stuck in this place where you never need to go beyond it because getting the laugh the easy yeah. way like yeah. left you there i was finding that was happening to, with me when i was young with the first iteration of nirvana the band the show which is that i found the things that were working best were me just acting completely screw loose like as offensive as possible like so much less sophisticated than than not to say the shows that sophisticated but then than it was when i got to do it again and and I learned about that concept and I, I was like, okay, I can't fall into this trap with myself, which is that, is that if you can get some level of success by doing the minimum amount of work, yeah. it's almost like I learned this as well about lying. I was an inveterate liar my whole life and it was, it was granting me great success, right? Hmm. Because that's what lies do. Like you avoid um, consequences by lying or you inflate your own self-worth because you can fool people. Hmm. And I trained myself unwillingly to become such a great liar that I could have great consequences for myself with no work. And then wow. what I was left with in my 20s was the ability to lie extremely well and no work ethic and no ability to, to do the things that I needed to do. So I had screwed myself in an almost Luciferian way, right? I had, I, it's, like I'd, it's like I'd made a wish on a monkey paw to be well-liked and successful and I got it, but it was only through lies. And that's another thing that that uh, that was another example of this low adaptive peak. That yeah, that to- no, you're you're hearing me exactly. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the lying. When did that start? When I was a very young kid, it was a, it was an interesting process, and that was that. It, now I, I look back on it and think differently, but in my family, I was very close with my brother. And, uh, and he and my mom had a interesting like quirk, which is that they would all, and I'm talking about I'm young, young, five or six years old. They would always ask me questions that I knew they knew the answers to. Hmm. Did you, have you ever, did you ever witnessed this? Like somebody, you oh, know, yeah. they ask you, a, okay, great. That's perfect. Because, because for me, I haven't experienced much in my adult life, but it would be things like, oh, were you just on the phone with your friend, Steven? knowing full, like I'm five years old, I've got one friend. When am I on the phone? Right. So I knew that they knew the answer, but because I'd always be getting asked these questions where I knew the asker knew what the answer was. I started to lie to say that what they thought reality was, wasn't to put us in a kind of like game where they would know I'd lied, 
but they couldn't admit that they knew what the answer was because yes. then they'd be admitting that they didn't need to ask the question. And anyway, I played that game. <laughs> I played that game maybe 50 times a day, every day from age five to age 17. I, you're really, and, yeah, keep going. You, well, I'm just saying. And, and so by the end of it, by the time I'm going to university into film school, I had gotten so good at lying with a straight face about the most insane things. And I'd also learned to tell lies in a way where I could get it right to the point where I knew somebody would believe me, even if I was saying something completely insane. And when you're watching Nirvana, the band, the show, most of what you're watching is me using this in public with real people. Right. right? right. Telling people my band is Nirvana, the band I'm going to play a show at the Rivoli. I need your help. And they all are like, yes, we'll help you because you seem sincere. Right. Uh, <laughs> I there, you know, obviously lying is a frown upon a uh, social uh, thing. <laughs> so we well, can, I have, I have, I have, I have deep thoughts on lies. I think, I think that lies really are bad and that, and that I've, 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 I've learned to draw a distinction between lying and storytelling because all stories are lies, but, Stories are also true. Right. And so I think that there's a difference between what's it in life. service of. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm with you, but you're also bringing back all these memories. I remember being a kid and wondering why my parents didn't lie to me more. Like just uh, silly stuff. Like it's rare that I can say something on this podcast that I don't think I've said before, but I remember thinking as a kid that when I have a kid, I'm going to pop my head in their bedroom and say, hey, your friend Miguel called. He He's said, dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said something absurd that, that there would be some implication. And like, I knew that they would know that I was lying. But what I'm hearing underneath this is something that comedy is and, and just sort of, I don't know what else to say other than like people that are interested in what we call reality. And lying is a little bit of a sonar ping going like, are we really doing this? Like, uh, what? what is this? Like, it is sort of an absurd construct and a lie like a joke. A joke is a lie too. Like, uh, like I'm shooting this movie and, and constantly people are like, the director wants you to wear gloves. And I'll always be like, no, like, because I just think that's funny. You're flirting. It's a it's a flirt with like, can we stop pretending that there's a director and there's a movie? It look, I might be unpacking it or flattering myself, but I'm like, we're in outer space. We're in these time traveling meat suits that expire, and everyone's walking <laughs> around going like, I'm number three on the call sheet, and I'm like, that's a joke, and like making these little jokes, which are kind of like little lies is a way of um, not raging against the machine, but just kind of being like, would you stop it, right? Can we stop pretending like this is so serious and so concrete when it's really just like a agreed upon web of, of bullshit, you know? Like, hello, Matthew, I see. How are you today? You know, the dance of it, it's almost a little Asperger-y or autistic, whatever we're supposed to say, like this, like, what is everyone doing and when I see someone like you disrupting that, it makes me feel a little less alone. Does that make sense? Let, oh, absolutely. I want to let, let me let me psychoanalyze that that what you bring up for a second because I do that exact same thing, and I wonder if 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 we're doing it for the same reason. So, 
the um, who's asking you to put on the gloves we'll say it's the ad or somebody from the wardrobe department okay so they came up to you and say the director wants to know if you'd put on these gloves well if so, if because I, I do the same thing right if i get asked to do something by a director or somebody it, what when i'm like when i say i'm you and i say no i'm not going to do it and clearly it's a joke what i'm doing is i'm saying look why are you playing this game with me where you're saying the director has asked if I will put on the gloves as if I have any choice? Yes. What are you doing? Why yes. are you telling, why are you being so polite to me and yes. saying, Pete, the director has just wondered if you might want to put on these gloves and it has, it has to do with these, the power hierarchy within it, this person speaking for the director. And it's yes. just so nauseating to watch yes. that you just have no choice, but to act like, as you say, like in a kind of rage against the machine way, say, no, I won't. Because that yes. of course, in the same way that me lying to my mom disrupts the whole thing. Yeah. Because they know you can't say no. Well, it's a trance. Can't say no. It's a, what I what I'm raging against is a trance where we're like sleepwalking through a process, and then before you know it, your life is over. You know what yeah. I mean? You never you never went like stop it, stop. <laughs> so I'd like to have as many little knows that you know I'm Joe. I'll say no while I'm putting on the. It's not even. It doesn't even slow the day. Well, that down. almost makes it better. That almost yeah. makes it better. It's a funnier bit to put them on. No, no, no. <laughs> or like, no way I'm wearing these. I love, and you mentioned power and status, which which are themes that I see in your work, making fun of being cool, making fun of being important, making fun of being successful, and we can unpack that. But like whoever the, the, the number one on, on, the number one is the star of the movie. I like making fun of them the most, maybe the director and the, and the star the most, because you're not supposed to like exactly on the first day. And, and she was joking. She was like, number one on the call sheet. And I went number two in our pants. And, and like, just like, I can't, it will not stand. And, and she died laughing, but like, I feel like that's the gift of comedy and, and one of the greatest achievements, if not the greatest achievement of my life. And I saw my dad wishing he could, uh, or, you know, kind of acting like he does have this mantle, to be honest. But when you are a comedian and we, when people understand that you're a comedian, it's, it's understood that you're going to say and do and behave all the ways you're not supposed to say, do and behave because he's just joking that that's, it's like a little badge that you get to wear. Well, you must mock the king. That's it. You must mock the king. Otherwise, what what are you doing? It's one of the great privileges is that for some reason, society honors people who are speaking a kind of devilish, not to invoke uh, religion again, but almost like like satanic truths in a way. And I mean that positively, right? Not like like Satan is in like like the depth of all evil, but I mean like true satanic truths where it's like, oh, is it it, like, that's almost true, but it's not true enough that we can get him in trouble. Like those... Yeah, they're so it's, delicious and fun. It is. It's like what what we're talking about is ways to make life a little bit more interesting. And I know you were doing that as a child with lies. I was craving that my parents would do it more with me because just going back to my point, I don't want to sleepwalk through life, you know. I and and I see you in the show that you made. It's like I don't want to just make another another fucking show. And I saw you in an interview talking about doing good work. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is that we will settle to do not good work when really, I think deep down, everyone would like to do good work, but that's another type of sleepwalking. Like we'll just, 
I mean, I'm never going to forget your metaphor. We'll just go down the mountain snow plowing because it's easy. Right, because it will be, and we'll get down and we will get down the mountain. And, yeah. and that's and that's a big problem. Again, this is a sort of nationalistic, but that's a big problem with my country, with Canada versus the US, is that there just is not there's basically no appetite to be great, which mm. is sort of an odd thing to say, but it's a it's a national problem problem that that I mean I put it in the movie literally that this yeah. that this there's this good enough philosophy behind everything everybody does is like oh that's good enough that's good enough yeah it's good like, enough what, is the enemy of of humanity of humanity i which i deeply that. believe right yeah. because if if you if you're like ah this is good enough like we, we it can be released like this well yeah <laughs> the real problem is that like especially with art in only in order to get to like uh, like that second level of like oh wow i'm really proud of this it bears a massive personal cost on you because mm. nobody's going to have the aesthetic standards that you do about your own work. Nobody's going to be like, you know, this really could be better. It's not releasable. In fact, it's the opposite. Everybody on your team wants you to be finished more than anything. Like, can it just be finished, please? And you need to be the one who's like, yeah, it would be so easy for me to say, yes, this is done because then we'd be done. Yeah. We could all get paid. Wouldn't that be great? Right. Like, it, but it's not done because, it, yeah. I yeah, heard you, you say well. that. You were like, well, that'll require a reshoot. I heard you say it in an interview and you were like, then we'll do a reshoot. And like, yeah. no one has that attitude like yeah. that I've seen. It's just people get really hung up on how difficult it would be to do something and what a headache it would be to do something. And, I, you know, it's just just get down the mountain and just get paid Oh yeah, I, just get paid is a huge, huge problem. It's, it's huge interesting, problem. <laughs> right? And look, I, I've I've succumbed to it more than once, so I, I understand it. I'm thinking, you know, what else came to mind when you're talking about you can get down the mountain just snow plowing? There's also something in nature, like a bubble, is just like the most energy efficient way. Oh yeah, for like uh, uh, I can't use the physics, but like for a structure to take a shape, so it takes the shape. Yeah, everything of a is about energy conservation. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, and there's another way to put that. It's like, we'll go to so much greater lengths than we will to, then we'll go to such greater lengths to avoid pain than we will to gain pleasure. That one, yeah. that one changed my life when I heard that. I was like, oh my God, I'm, I do that. Yeah, everybody does. I, I do it all the time, especially in terms of being in public and being humiliated. Like right. humiliation is one of the most, like you, you're desperate to avoid it. In fact, combining that with this concept of comedy, it's like, oh, well, I'll do anything I can do to get a laugh at this moment. I'll do absolutely anything. Yeah, It's why I, I found that after that hu humiliation as a young person trying to be a stand-up comic, I realized, oh, I need to find a, like a way of working where I can humiliate myself over and over again, knowing full well that I will control the yeah. end result. And so when you're watching Nirvana, the band, the show, or when you're watching Blackberry, it's like, you're not seeing the hundreds of hours of stuff that is completely awful, awful, yeah. awful. Yeah. Like the terrible stuff that is, is so bad. And it's why I love working with actors because I, I afford them that same gift. One of the early things I said to Glenn was, it was the deal that we made early on. I was like, look, if you never, ever, ever try to be funny ever, I promise I can make you the funniest person in this movie. And I, and I, I, I guarantee it. If you just wow. never be funny and you feel like you're not being funny. And, and one of his big concerns, I'm not sure if he talked to you about this was 
I'm not funny. He saw the movie. He saw the movie and thought he wasn't funny, which is so amazing, right? Like what, what a success yeah. <laughs> this was. That he he did it so hard that he saw himself. He's like, I'm a I'm a hateable, awful character. I yeah. hate what I've done. Yeah. And I was like, trust me. Yeah. Trust me, people are gonna be blown away. But that's that's great direction because I've noticed, you know what it is when I'm in a scene and you know, we're just shooting yesterday, and I catch myself when my coverage is is head on, I'm just favoring head on a little bit more. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And that's a yeah, that's a right. dangerous instinct, is because you it's so the ego is such a tricky thing and you want to score. And what I hear Glenn saying is something I've felt before too, which is like, uh, even though I want people to like my performance, really what I still want above all is for people to think that I'm like a good guy and like a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. And like we should we give him resources, give him romantic partners, give him, give him food, you know, yeah. like, so it's such a, so you cut him. Did he ever, did you ever feel like he was being funny? And you were like, well, we, we're not going to use that. Uh, he was good to his word. Believe wow. it or not. I never, I, I can't think of even one time in between takes. I was like, are you trying to be funny? But that's because wow. we had a, early on, we knew what we wanted. He and yeah. I were like really like in lockstep trying to do this thing together. Mm-hmm. And it was that promise that if he, if he never was funny, that uh, that we could do something really amazing, and I yeah. think he just he bought it. Wow. Now after the movie was done and he first saw it, I think he was quite upset. But <laughs> but but then we premiered and he and he and he was happy again. So oh well that oh what an incredible story. So talking a little bit about Canada and and their la- what how did you phrase it? There's no desire to be great. I well I think it's 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 a deep lack is that that we as a as a country it comes from our risk aversion it, I, I'm telling you this is like our biggest problem here here's the big problem in Canada you can't get fired for failing at wow. any of like the like like you know how studios exec if the execs if they release a bad movie they're fired if they green light something that's too expensive and it bombs they're fired that that's that does it's impossible in this country what? <laughs> really? it can't happen yet it cannot happen. Yeah. Wow. It's like so you, the office should have happened in Canada. Because right. remember, people were like, why doesn't Michael Scott get fired? If it was in Canada, everyone would have been like, it would make right. perfect sense, actually. It's, in yeah. fact, it's one of the reasons that shows such a huge hit here. And, really? and they have a very Canadian affectation in the office. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like, that's just the way things work if you work in government. And the problem is, like, movies in Canada is an arm of the government. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw you explain that somewhere else too, where it's like they're funded by something that's essentially a government uh it, it, it just is. It's not even essentially a government arm. It literally is an arm of the government. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Okay, so to talk a little bit about again, I, I like all good comedy, I do think you're skewering ego and and success. And I think I love corporation movies like like Blackberry. And I do think they touch on what's wrong with the American, meaning North America. What do I say? You just say American? Canada is... Well, that's North American. But yeah, uh, if, if I were to say American, I'd be talking about your country. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay, America. Um, <laughs> don't point at me when you say your country. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, between the two of us. <laughs> but like, I love those stories because they seem... They don't just seem. They are perfect metaphors for a life that's that goes sideways they're like they're these hero journeys where it's like they start in the garage or the basement or or you know and they're all friends 
and then success comes their way. And then, you know, you see this with Jay's character, the founder of BlackBerry, like then they start wanting to succeed for success's sake. Like, or they don't want to lose what they got. That's another big problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's another big problem. Nobody knows what to do when you've already won. I see this in show business. I see a lot of very dissatisfied, multi-millionaire famous people that just, there's no playbook. They, they rang the bell and, and BlackBerry rang the bell. It was like the number one phone, huge phone. You're right. They couldn't get any bigger. Exactly. And now it's completely gone. But you see, and then you see the cost. It almost is like an old fashioned morality play Wow, now Jared Robb entered the waiting room. What is going on? Should you know, we Jer- admit him? <laughs> you know who Jared Rabb is? Who? Jared Rabb is the cinematographer of Blackberry. And I think I know what must have happened. This link, this link was sent to me by my producer, and he must have sent it into a chat that these other guys are in. So this must be other people from the crew of BlackBerry or just like my friends who, who are in this, who must think it's a meeting or something like that. Like, oh, that's why. Right. Okay, good. Yeah, that's why. The, yeah. So I'm not going to be so, murdered by no, no, a friendly worry. Canadian. That's, that, I, that's exactly what's going on. But do you, do you see what I'm getting at is the idea that these. You're talking reason... about the business movie as the microcosm of like yes. a life gone wrong or a life yes. well lived. Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny. It, you you brought up the idea of like like young men in a garage and the kind of fraternalistic origin of these types of stories. And somehow, do you know do you know the myth of Gilgamesh at all? This is one of my favorites. So this no. is this is one of the this is one of the original original like like pre biblical myths. And um, it has a whole beginning where him and his best friend fight, and the, and the one guy dies. But the part of it that I love is the second half of it. Okay, so. King Gilgamesh is like the ruler of this great kingdom. And it's like, it's amazing. He's a, he's a, ostensibly a billionaire, but he's like, ah, but my best friend just died. I don't want to die. I need to find a way to conquer death. I want to live forever. So he leaves his kingdom, which he hates. He's grown so tired of it. He's like, my kingdom is, look at this opulence, boredom. Everybody just bows to me. I hate it here. I'm leaving. So he goes off into the wilderness to try to meet the gods in order to barter for eternal life. And all of these people he meets, uh, they give him little tests and they're like, okay, if you can do this, then we'll let you live forever. If you can swim to the bottom of this ocean and find this route, you can live forever. And he fails all of them. One of them is you have to stay awake for five days or something. And he like falls asleep after one. Like he just can't win. Everything Gilgamesh does, he can't He can't do it, even though he wants this so badly. And after enough of these trials, he's like, fuck it, I can't. I failed. And he goes home walks through the desert back to his kingdom and he's just like I fucking suck. God damn it. And he gets back to his kingdom and as he sees it cresting over the horizon and he sees it in all its glory, he just starts to cry. And he's like mm. this place looks great. What a wow. beautiful kingdom I've returned to. I love it here. And he reenters and is so stoked. It's like he has somehow revivified himself. Through the power, through the power of failure, by losing and failing and trying to do something, now he's feeling like, ah, I can now live in this place. I can live in this kingdom again. And that's like, uh, it's a wonderful life, almost. Yeah. Well, right. Well, look, this story's been ripped off a million times. Nirvana, the band, is a ripoff of the myth of Gilgamesh. Blackberry, I was trying to do kind of like, um, like the beginnings of that, but then gone completely wrong, where they didn't see the wisdom of it. Like it's no, it's no. Um, 
mistake that at the end of the movie, Mike is doing the exact same thing that he did at the beginning of the movie and trying to fix this tiny little physical problem that yeah. he was at the beginning of the film trying to fix. And anyway, all this is to say that I think one of the reasons that these stories of corporations and corporate hierarchies and beginnings of like very small groups that then go on to change the world, but then wind up in a, in a state of personal failure are, are so, I, I don't know, they're so ubiquitous, but also so powerful is because they're tapping in to these ancient myths without telling us that mm. they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that whatever movie you pick that is, that is effective and, and is, is using the same kind of story beat uh, progression is actually secretly telling you a mythic story and you just don't realize it you, you know bjork the musician bjork i mean obviously yeah yeah she, she's got a great quote about art because she was asked what what the job of an artist is and she said the job of an artist is to connect the myths of your ancestors with the future and that's wow. all that an artist does wow. and uh and I, t- I took that really seriously so so anyway yeah in, in in blackberry it's like i'm trying to work all these things out um but they don't within, learn the within, lesson. Well, look, you could argue that Jim definitely does because Jim is so miserable. Like you don't see him smile at some purpose. Glenn and I had this game where it's like, no matter what, just don't smile. And he never does, except for when, you know, his enemies are suffering. Um, oh. And, uh, and, and the only, and because he's never at peace, he's never gotten over the humiliation of being fired at the beginning of the film. And so he's doing everything he can, just, just like Gilgamesh, right? He saw, he witnessed death at the beginning of the film. I could die. If I have a boss that can fire me, I could die. And so he goes out into the world and he says, I am never going to die. And so he's willing to do anything to create so much of a buffer between him and failure that no matter what happens, he's going to be the richest guy. He's going to like, if, if Mike needs these engineers, he'll go get them. He does all of these things. And in the end, he's betrayed like Caesar by the guy that he himself created, right? Mm. He gets stabbed in the back by his partner. And rather than being like, oh, fuck. Like, you expect this guy who's been screaming all movie to now yeah. rip the head off of this loser. But instead, he thinks about it, then smiles in the same way that Gilgamesh did when he saw his kingdom wow. at the end after all this failure. Because he's like, ah, I'm home. Like, it, there's a real quote that I heard after the movie came out from Jim Balsley. Jim didn't tell me the story one of his best friends did. And it was after all this happened to Jim, the SCC came for me, lost everything, right? He went to lunch with a friend and the friend was sitting there and he watched Jim come in. And Jim was the kind of guy who would never meet with anybody for more than 15 minutes because he was so like, I got to go, got to go. He was always working. And he sat down and he had lunch with this guy for two hours. And the guy said, Jim, I got to say, like, I've never seen you like this before. You seem happy. I'm worried you're going to commit suicide. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, why are you in such a good mood? And he said, you know. It took me losing everything to realize what a big shot I was. And uh, so he could finally feel like, oh, wow, I actually am great. <laughs> and I only could feel it because I lost everything. And wow. yeah, I didn't know that before we made the film, but but it was it was uh, fun to hear because so it meant that we were getting at something. Did Jim Bosley, so he's the guy that, if if you haven't seen Blackberry, he's he's Glenn Howerton's character. He's sort of the hard-headed guy who takes these young squabs with a, a vision and and drives them into success. And then in the end, he sort of is betrayed. Did he lose all his 
money? Like it seemed no, like he, he didn't, didn't lose all of his money. He just he just lost uh, his position. a huge amount a huge amount of money and he was for lack of a better word fired from from Blackberry. He was forced so to So his leave biggest the fear. So he did yeah. die. It's yes. yeah. No, these these themes are I mean this I, maybe I'm flattering myself again, but like the movie is deeply resonant with me and as you're explaining this, I think these Bjorky themes really well, she's she's true she's right when she's Bjork right. said that i was like holy shit bjork yeah you're a genius like yes exactly and as soon as you realize that as soon as you realize uh oh, the only thing we're supposed to be doing is basically like like revivifying these old stories with new skin because that's kind of what made us who we are. It yeah. makes it makes not only life like way more enjoyable because you feel like you're kind of you're like animating the tongues of old gods, yeah. but it means that you know you have purpose behind everything you do because you're like, oh, you wait in the same way that you said, like you wait until you see something that you're interested in, you find an interest and you follow it, and then you you go deep enough in it to realize how it's connected to stories that were that's making right. people animated, you know, ten thousand years ago. And now you feel at home on the planet, right? You know, exactly. Richard, Richard Rohr, this um, Franciscan that I love, he says essentially Christianity is um, studying how to lose well. How to lose? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Well, look, that's the passion. That's the story. The right. passion. And right? It, lose, lose everything. He goes, look at the. It's right in front of your face. He goes, look at the 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 fucking the logo, for lack of a better term, of the religion is a guy dying. Dying. Yeah. <laughs> and we all gather and watch that and look at it, but like the most obvious things, it's staring you right in the face, but it's hidden in plain sight. We think, or I, I'll say I thought, that Christianity was about having a genie that would grant your wishes. And But I'm like, but this genie didn't even save his own son, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Looking at it traditionally. And that's then, you know, through years of study, my perception of that story changed was 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 Jesus was dying and not losing his higher identity. You know what I mean? Not losing some sense of being spirit or whatever you want to say, meaning Gilgamesh didn't really do it. I, I, well, we can talk about whether or not you thought he did it, but you know, these stories where you go, you try to cheat death, you bargain with the gods, you can't do it. And then you still find an equanimity in your inevitable place as a loser, as someone who can't hold on to anything. It also really reminds me of the story of the Buddha, of, of Siddhartha, who was also a king in a kingdom, who was also bored Abandoned with the origins, it, yeah. leaves, realizes he's going to die, and then seeks... His, his bargaining with the gods is somewhat different. He he looked for uh, surrender or or however else you want to phrase that. But, the, but these themes are, are there and they need to be told. And they need to be told over and over and over again and, and to be constantly updated because it's in the it's like the further away we get from them, the more out of place or like, well, it's it's why I, I, I watch so many movies and I'm like, I don't know, this is just ridiculous. I don't even know what this is about. It's like they're refusing to to commit or to connect with with any kind of old mythology. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you're talking about this. You reminded me of one of my favorite uh, uh, quotes from a saint, uh, St. Augustine, who said, um, Lord, make me chaste but not yet. <laughs> one, 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 one of the greats, one of the greats. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think it was St. Augustine too that said, do what you want, do whatever you want and love God or love God and do whatever you want, which was so confusing to me growing up because religion to me was all about um, adherence. Adherence was about yeah. being polite, being nice, but all the same things I'm trying to do now. That's still in there as I'm trying to seem like a nice and good guy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But now I'm like, these epics and these these great stories that survive, I don't think they're just calling us to like get along and like be a functioning person. I think they're calling you to be able to be crucified or betrayed or lose everything and still know that you can't not be at home. That That's how I would <laughs> phrase it. You can't not or be even, connected. Even, even more so to put yourself in the position to be destroyed, which is even more of a, of a challenge. Not just that, oh, I know I could, I'm resilient enough that I could take being destroyed. It's that, oh no, I'm going to go out to intentionally be destroyed. Wow. That's, yeah. It, which is, which is much scarier, right? I would say we live in a, especially in my country, in, in, a, in a place of pure safetyism, where the idea of putting yourself in a position where you could suffer anything at all, even a bit, is anathema. Like nobody's yeah. doing that. Nobody's doing that. Which is so funny because to me, visiting here, I admire the grit with the cold. You think the cold yeah, right. would, <laughs> would produce more of a I can do anything spirit? It's more so, of a we've had enough. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sort of, would you say it sort of breaks people? I mean, it's fucking intense. Yeah, well, where you are specifically, it's one of the coldest places that is still habitable in the country. So yeah. And it lends uh, yeah. itself to a lot of like, I don't eat a like big bowls of pasta. But as soon as I got here, I was like, just give me hibernation food and keep me inside. And do you think that sort of spread? Do you think that had something to do with it? Yeah, there's certainly a northern hardiness that where you're like, <laughs> where you're like, I just want to be safe because again, the elements are so vicious up here. They're so vicious and brutal. But, but so I love them. I love them. Lo love what? The cold. I love the cold and the snow. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Why? Why is there so much incredible comedy that comes from here? Is it because you're such an outlier? If you do want to shake things up, does that help things? Yeah, well, I think that in some ways, comedians are much more rare. And it, so, I just did a, a big tour of the United States, and you live there. So, so it's like the water in which you swim. But my feeling is that every single person that I met on the street is like, Oh, you should be on TV. Every American <laughs> I met was like, you, how do you not have your own show? It's crazy. I went to Detroit, <laughs> Chicago, um, St. Louis, Memphis, and new Orleans. And I would say nine of the 10 people I met, I was like, this person is like, uh, uh, that 100 is times. so Funny. Can I tell you, I met somebody, not this trip, but another trip in a different part of Canada. And they were like the most flat person I had ever met. And That's our whole country. They proceeded to tell me about their TV show idea. And the, and I was like, <laughs> who, who would be in it? And they were like, me. me. And I was like, I, I mean, I had to bite my tongue. They're, but in a loving way, I almost wanted. And then I was like, and then they were like, or, you know, somebody else. And I was like, you don't even care if it's you. And like, it was the most benign pitch. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the States doesn't have that issue. <laughs> like, Not at just... all. And in Canada, if you get, if you start doing anything in terms of the perform, like all the second city guys in the eighties who, who exploded, like you stand out, 
you stand out in a big yeah. way. And I think that while that may seem crippling because the numbers are lower, like there's less people who are trying to be class clowns, which in my opinion is like the first kind of step on the staircase towards being uh, in comedy, you you wind up getting all the resources. And by that, I mean all the attention. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. it's not you're not going to an entire high school of people who all want to be famous. That's very rare in this country. <laughs> So, you know, so, so John Candy and Eugene Levy, like, those are like the few guys in their schools. They got it all. Oh, that's the funny guy. That's the one guy who's funny and he's going to be on TV one day. Just because our culture is so. You're a weird farm league in that way. Like you get like. For for the United States. In fact, I got a huge political problem with that, believe it or not. I'm trying to, I'm trying to stop that in my career. The kind of brain drain specifically of filmmakers and actors to the United States. Because it, you know what you may, you wouldn't realize it at all, but because you're surrounded by it in Los Angeles or New York or even Chicago. In Toronto, there's no role models. Everybody leaves. And wow. so what are we left with, right? Like there's nobody that young people can look to and be like, oh, I want to be like them. In fact, they, 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 they hear, oh my God, I didn't know Jim Carrey was Canadian. Oh, wow. I didn't know John Candy was Canadian. Like you yeah. don't, you don't even realize these guys are from this country when you're growing up here until you get to a certain age. And so because they're not here and everybody leaves because that's the only marker of success, we don't have a, it's 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 not fertile ground to develop an industry. Like there is no Canadian film industry. And at all. do you want to fix that? Deeply, I badly want to fix it. I, I, what I, I I want to try to find ways to make it so that young people stop making the the marker of success, transplanting themselves to another country. Yeah, I'd lo- I'd love it if if young people could be like, oh, I really want to make movies in Toronto. I really want to make movies in Winnipeg. I really want to make movies in Vancouver because we don't have a national voice. It's not like the like BlackBerry is probably the first Canadian movie you've seen in your life. Would be my <laughs> would be my guess. <laughs> and, I've been, and and it's that way for most people. I've right? seen some of Jay's horror movies. Okay, uh, never yeah. mind. Never mind then. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yes, okay. yeah, no, but you're right. I. Th- that's a very fair point. Pardon the interruption, weirdos. This episode is brought to us by our friends at Roosevelt's RSLVTS. Look, I changed. I'm traveling. I'm currently in Winnipeg, Canada, shooting a movie. I only brought one dress shirt. And of course, it is a Roosevelt's. Roosevelt's are the makers of my favorite feeling fitting and looking clothing and apparel that I have discovered in recent years. They are incredible and they're also very, very fun. It's called Roosevelt's RSVLTS. It's an apparel brand born for their passion for pop culture and Americana. They combine high quality products with fun, bold designs to offer a uniquely rad concept. Their team has a little bit of something for everyone with uh, Star Wars stuff, Disney, Nickelodeon to classic movies and shows like The Big Lebowski, The Office and tons more. This is the best way to get a gift for the fanatic in your life, somebody that loves any of these franchises or if your style's a little bit more laid back like mine, they just have classic prints that look awesome. I've worn them on late night TV, I've worn them to movie premieres, high quality threads that look fun and help you pop just a little bit. Not too much, not too much, but just a little bit. Get a conversation going, have a little bit more fun. Light, stretchy, soft, and fit so damn nice. They're moisture wicking, extremely breathable, made from Kunu Flex, which is a four-way stretch material. So it almost has like an athletic feel, but looks dressed up, but also kind of casual. 
have shirts for everyone. They have toddlers, youth, men, and women. Like I said, Jurassic Park, The Office, and even more laid back like this bespoke original designs. They won't shrink or wrinkle after washing. In fact, that's one of the reasons I love traveling with them and wearing them on stage. I throw them in my carry-on. I take them out. They are ready to wear Based out of Hoboken, New Jersey, clothing for the bold and the fun. Those who dare mighty things, just like their namesake, Teddy Roosevelt, once said. If you get your hands on some of these amazing items, visit rsvlts.com or check them out on Instagram at rsvlts. They are awesome. Absolutely get into it. Also brought to us by our friends at Electric E-Bikes. I don't know if you guys have known this. We got Electric E-Bike about a year ago, and it's absolutely changed our lives. We decked it out. I got the support seat, uh, which installed very, very easily, and I cruise around with Leela on the back. It's made going for errands so much more fun, so much more enjoyable. We hop over or ride over to the grocery store, ride back so easily, easy to add storage, easy to cruise. That's what I love most about it. It's so fun, it's so intuitive, it's fast but not like insane. It's, it's certainly not a motorcycle, it's comfortable is what I'm saying. I got on it a little bit shaky at first. I was like, is this gonna be okay? Couldn't have been easier. Just a little turn of the throttle or the pedal assist gets you moving, gets you outside, gets you exercising. Uh, Leela and I now go for epic long daddy-daughter bike rides end up somewhere, get some pizza, and ride back. The battery on the one that I have, which is called the Expedition, lasts so long, it is incredible. Any can, anyone can ride, designed for a better mode of transportation for all riders, durable features, and accessories for added safety, convenience, and control. Save on gas, parking, and maintenance. That's one of the things I love. We go to the farmer's market once a week. Always the parking lot is full. Take the e-bike, absolutely no problem. Same safety regulations and road access as regular bikes. In most states, licenses, registration, and inspection are not required, but always check the laws in your area. We absolutely love it. Add more physical activity, get more outside time to your everyday life. Up to 150 miles on one charge with Electric's unbeatable long-range options. So, explore 2024 with Electric e-bikes, the most accessible and adventurous e-bikes ever. Visit electricebikes.com to learn more, and be sure to mention You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes sent you in on the post-checkout survey. Support the show, support your life. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-bikes.com. And do fill out that survey and tell them that You Made It Weird sent you. All right, everybody, back to Matt Johnson. The joke in LA, I live outside of LA, is like move to LA to make movies and shoot them in Montreal, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, right. So like there's this bizarre, I like LA. I don't I don't even live there anymore, but like there is a sacrifice to living in these are the bad things about LA. Vapid, sort of self-obsessed, very uh external, all the all the stereotypes um are are valid to a certain extent. So you move there. And you're in this weird town that only does one thing, really. I know there are other things happening, but there's an obsession with show business. But then you end up shooting in Canada. Everything, everything shoots. I've been to Canada six times in the past, I don't know, 18 months. 
And that, that's that, crazy. That's absurd. Everything shoots in Canada. Everything. Every once in a while, you'll do something and they're like, it shoots in LA. And you're like, and you're like, oh thank God. my <laughs> God, I can drive. Like it's it's an absurd thing. So it stands to reason that you could just, I mean, it already exists. The infrastructure already exists. Well, can I tell you the dark brother of this story that you're telling me, which is yeah. going to make you go, oh my God, I can't believe it. So there's so much American production that goes on in my country, specifically in Toronto, that Canadian filmmakers like well, like me, for example, making Blackberry, all the studios are booked, all the crews are booked, all Canadian film has to shoot outside of Toronto because we can't afford to shoot in the city because it's all full of American production. Oh so we, the whole reason that we shot Blackberry way outside, like when Glenn came to Toronto, he was like, I love Toronto. I got lots of friends here. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, well, look, you're going to be about an hour and a half from Toronto because Whoa. we can't actually afford to be there because no Canadian filmmakers can shoot in the city. This we seems all like, are shooting way outside. It's we're, we're like, go ahead. Well, it's just we're we're relegated to a, to a second status within within our country. A just because city? We, we're, we're, we're we're yeah yeah right literally. <laughs> I I'm worried though because of the money thing. It does seem like just such a you know David and Goliath thing. Of course, of course, yeah. and I and I don't begrudge it. In fact, I, like I I kind of only tongue in cheek sales is a big problem because I'll bloom where I'm planted, and, and that's the advice I give all young people. But it is a kind of irony that the only productions that can afford to shoot in Canada are American productions that come in and use our cities as though they're New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. Okay. Let me ask you some specific uh, Nirvana, the band, the show questions. I, I was curious what you buy speed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they're that's just a real, that's a real drug deal. It's a real drug deal. Yeah. At the, yeah. It's a, a very you famous. Just, you would, it, the joke is that you're just going up to people and saying, do you have any speed? And you <laughs> well, do. It's not a joke. I, I need yeah. speed. <laughs> you, but I need speed. You don't really need speed. You're pretending to need speed. Yeah, yes, right. But, you know, how close are they? Because I really do need somebody to actually sell me the speed. So That's I can't, true. Uh, so I can't, I can't bullshit them. I can't you, walk up as though I'm a candid camera. No, yeah. I, I, I went to I went to Drug Corner in uh, in Toronto, which is actually a very safe place. And uh, and I knew we got lucky in that there was that street preacher there on the day trying it's to so invite good. drug addicts in to try to clean them. And so I got to have that incredibly um, two toned conversation with him, yeah. where I'm yeah. telling him with a straight face, "No, no, the speed's not for me. I need it for a friend to win a gold like, night that, tournament. That used to we be really me. need the speed." And he's looking at me like, "Oh, this guy's so far gone." Yeah. Oh, he's yeah, lying yeah. even to me. <laughs> That so you find a, a woman, it seems she's blurred, and she just sold, sold you speed just like well, she that? connected. She she connected me with somebody who had the speed. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you bought two hundred dollars worth of speed. I gave her the two hundred dollars. She gave me the speed, and in the end, I was like, you know what? I don't actually need this because I knew we weren't going to do the speed on camera. So then we're using like dummy drugs in the rest of the episode, but I wanted the deal to be legitimate, you know? So you gave her the speed as a, as a gratuity. <laughs> well, it was hers to begin with. So I just gave it back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Has a hidden camera thing ever gone so wrong that you didn't use it? Well, it depends what you mean by so wrong. The worst thing that ever happened was in season one, we spent about a week building 
an exhibit inside the biggest museum in Canada because we wanted to smash it and break it out and run. And that <laughs> went perfectly, but there was an undercover police officer in the museum right there when we did it. And so I smashed this huge glass, fake glass um, exhibit to steal a map. And then Jay and I try to leave calmly. Um, and this guy grabbed me and was like, don't move. You're under arrest. And I realized, okay, if I don't, cause we need to get out of there for the plot to keep going. And so I was like, okay, Jay, we have to run. And so I say, Jay run, I'm on camera. It's all in character. And I kind of spin out of this guy's grasp and we ran for our lives and they chased us right onto the subway, which is the clip that you saw where we then jump on the tracks to get away. So what oh. you didn't see right before that is we escape from him and then the security guards chasing us out of this museum. And later we went back and we're like, Hey, we didn't steal anything. We had built that in your museum without you knowing it over the course of a week, but that was as bad as it got. And, and, and that was pretty That's incredible. That you should see it. Oh, go ahead. I, I, it was, it was one of the most intricate things that we did because we wanted to do something real where the, where the public and, and the people there would react like, Oh my God, they're robbing a museum. But again, because we're Canadian, like we don't want to actually do anything bad. Like we don't want to actually put anybody uh, out. So, so our art uh, production designer, Adam Belanger just went in secretly building this exhibit over the course of days. Oh my God. That is incredible. That happened in the movie. Um, once have you seen once? No, but I, but I, my producer loves this film. Well, you know, one of the things I think you'll like about it as a filmmaker is they shot it in public um, with very long lenses. So no one knew. Yeah. And there's a couple of funny things about that. One is that Glenn, Glenn Hansard, who's in it, is famous. So every once in a while, pe- you can see people noticing him, like which is not right for the movie. And oh. then they do a scene towards the beginning where someone steals his bag, like his guitar bag, which is filled with money. They pick it up and run, but they're shooting with long lenses. So someone in one of the takes chased the guy and tackled him. So the actor oh, wow. got tackled exactly what happened to you. So there are Did they these, use it? I don't think they use the take where the guy got chased because it sort of ruined it. It sort of ruined um, everything. See, I, I, always, I always try to put myself in a position where when something goes wrong, we use, use it. it. Yeah, like you got it because then people are like, "What the hell?" Yeah, yeah, How yeah. Do they do it? You're out. How do they do like, it? It's like the rule: if the stunt guy dies, you have to use use the take. Which is yeah, yeah. Which is something I I, I desperately live by. I don't want to kill the patient on the operating table because there is this magic to the show, and I, I can't say enough good things about it. To to watch something that even as a as a creator as a comedian kept me guessing, and I was always surprised by the plot, I'm covering my face, I'm shocked, I'm, I'm feeling all these things. You know what I mean when you watch something and you go like, it can still be done. It can still, it can still it's happen. My, it's my, it's my favorite feeling. It's I call it, I call it the meta viewing experience where you're watching it here, but you're yeah. also watching it here. I, yeah. This is like the most addictive. It's like when you're watching a music, magician perform a trick yeah. where you're watching the story of the trick while simultaneously unpacking how is this trick happening. Yes. It's an amazing feeling that That's, I feel like o- o- only cinema and magic can do. Only those two. Are you a magic guy? Ability. No, no, not at all. I, 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 I know little about it, but yeah. but but I know that experience. I'm a big Orson Welles fan and Orson Welles was a, a notorious magician. And, uh, and so it, that was my way in. But I love this feeling. I know exactly but what you're talking about. You're right. In when I started, I, I'm not a magician, but I love magic just because I like to know how things work. But I don't do it Me to too. ruin it. 
I do in it. I do it to appreciate it. So when David Blaine's special came out, his first one, the street magic one, I learned all the tricks. I still know them. They're great tricks, but it wasn't to go like, fuck you. You're not magic. It was because I was like, well, no, to appreciate it. It was to appreciate it. I was like, I can't yeah. believe. And that's how I feel when you're crawling under the table during the golden eye thing. And when, when he's dying on the floor and then, so I don't want to ruin it. So it's from the spirit of appreciation when you're going into the hockey game and you want to get on the kiss cam. Yes. I'm like, okay. You know, meta viewing, I'm going like, yeah, that stands to reason if these guys, so I'm trying to be ahead of the story casually. These guys are going to do, they're going to act so crazy. If I wanted to get on the camera, they'll get on the cam. And I'm like, cause they want to get on the camera. And then this, by the way, I could tell you every beat of the story. It wouldn't ruin the episode for you. Your plot is to get on the camera and then you'll kiss you and your, your male friend and you'll expose the homophobia and everyone will puke. And then at the game, the kiss cam goes on two men before us, before you guys. Yeah, they kiss and everybody's obviously totally cool with it. They're cheering. Yeah, they're cheering. It's actually very sweet. Uh, I say actually because it, it, it's it's not often that you see real warmth on a kiss cam, but there's like affection <laughs> and love coming through. But then it cuts to you guys and it's brilliant. I won't say what you do. It ends up being unbelievably hilarious. But I do want to know, magician to magician, why did they cut to you guys? <laughs> They didn't. They, they didn't, didn't cut to us. No, we we shot that all. It's, it, we shot that in three pieces. We shot us at the game. We yeah. shot us in a different um, stadium, and then we, we shot that entire kiss cam was all done with VFX. There is no kiss cam oh! at Maple Leafs games. So all of these things, although it's happening real, and you really see me throw up, you like all these things are real. Yeah. They're happening in completely different realities, and then combined into one, so see, that you think that what you're seeing is is happening. It's Spielberg yeah. in the desert with his mom with the eight millimeter. Like it, <laughs> it's what I'm. It's a really high compliment. I think I'm giving you is like. There's just so much effort and imagination. And we're going back to what we were saying at the top of our chat is like a childlike, and this is what's missing so much, is what could we do? It's life. It's like white <laughs> lightning. And it's usually for children. And if grownups can get that sort of, but what could we do? And, and then the answer is anything. It. And yeah. the answer is anything. Yeah. And like, I just watching your show and talking to you now is, and I hope for the listeners is really just reanimating this pure childlike, not childish, but childlike. Wait, I know you remember me and my friends with our camcorders when I was in junior high, my camcorder would just be like, we could do any and we'd just do it. And when I look and it was back, the, and it was the funniest thing in the world. It was the funniest thing in the world. I look yeah. back on those ideas. I was just thinking about one two days ago. Me and my friend Aaron, or I called him Ern. I still call him Ern. Was the Adventures of George and George? Just two guys that had the same name. And I'm hilarious. like, that's still funny. It's yeah, still funny to me that they're both named because <laughs> that and could happen. Sh- What's that? And the show makes that the centerpiece. The yeah. fact that in the title, it's the adventures of George and George, because even the show knows that the that's a little The show knows it's a joke, which of course we yeah. learned from The Simpsons and we learned from other things. But like, and then we had another one called Spoon Boy, 
which was the joke was he wasn't magical, but his spoon was magical. So he couldn't fly. The spoon but could fly. But spoon could, right. So he'd he hold just, on to the He was the, the spoon? keeper. Yeah. Yeah, he was the spoon's keeper. Yeah. I stand by that that was funny. I like Well, I, the, one of the great ironies is that the things that you did when you're young and you're like, oh my God, it's the best idea ever, you just can't ever let go of. And it's so impossible to contextually put the people that you're explaining it to in the headspace that you were in when it That's was happening. And yeah. yet it still has this kind of magic to you. I've been making Nirvana the band the show since I was 20 years old. And there's something about it that I can't quite shake. I don't even know how to explain it, but there's just something that is like, if you get it, you get it. And it is that return to the way a child sees the world, which is that anything is possible. And any day I could wake up and write an idea on the whiteboard, and that'll be the thing that gets us this show at the Rivoli, which is exactly the way a young kid thinks, which yeah. is that I'm going to be an adult any day now. Yeah. And I just need to do the right thing and then bang. But it's following. I'm going to be an adult. It's following just enough of the rules, meaning. You know, you type in Nirvana, the band, the show into Apple TV. It shows you Flight of the Concords. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I'm, is, I'm not surprised at all. Because that's how the algorithm works. It's like, well, you want a show about two guys trying to make it. So I think this is an important step I'd love to hear you talk about. It's like, it's not just bullshit. There's, sorry to quote myself, but there was a, a joke that makes me laugh in my own Batman video. Where Aquaman says, I'm from Atlantis. And I go, why not Narnia as long as we're doing bullshit stuff? <laughs> it just kills me. So bullshit stuff is like just absolute nonsense. But you're going like, what is the, tell me if I'm right, the bare minimum of storytelling structure, meaning these guys do have to have a drive. There needs to be something. Otherwise, we're not going to. We're not going to want to get on the train or watch them. If it was just them going like, how can we be idiots today? Yeah, what's, let's say, just strictly be funny. Like, what's the low adaptive peak of us being ridiculous for an audience? Look, that's that's you're describing the difference between me when I was young versus me now, which is that I've learned that their structure... Do you, do, you, do you do much writing? Do you like, like, I mean, like, like, uh, like screenplay or anything like writing yeah. where it's like, he's got it. You, you know, stand-up comedy is just like this. Uh, there's something that I learned about eight years ago that completely changed my life about story structure. Because when I was a kid, I was like, like structure and rules of storytelling are such bullshit. They're just another imposed, like, don't shoot movies with kids rule that I'm going to do the opposite. And I'm going to find, I'm going to use that as a map, right? I, 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 I swallowed my own poison and convinced myself I was smarter than everything. And, and I kept failing. Mm. viciously, viciously failing uh, at everything that I did that involved long-form storytelling until I realized that to be against structure as a storyteller is like being against a piano as a piano player. Mm. It's such an absurd thing to think. It's like you say you're a musician. Well, what instrument do you play? It's like, well, I don't play any instrument. Like structure is the instrument that story is played on. It, mm -hmm. it, it, you, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't get rid of it. You can't say that you're not, you're not going to deal with structure because that is what a story is. A story is a structure and all you do is play it. You just play it differently than other people play it, yes. but you're still playing the structure. And, and whenever I'd be writing things with my friends, we'd always notice that it feels like when you're coming up with an idea, 
it feels like you're all remembering the same dream that you had the night mm. before. Mm. And so it's like you, you you have an idea and it's like, oh, Matt and Jay, they have a hamburger and, and they take a bite and it grants wishes. So he's like, oh, that's ridiculous. It's like, okay, but maybe it's like he he only finds the hamburgers because he got thrown out of something. And then everybody starts being like, oh, yeah, that did happen in the dream. Oh, yes, that is what's in the dream. Yes. And then you all reconcile the fact that you've had the same dream yes. the night before. And it's all the same, but you just needed to collectively remember it. And that's yeah. what fits it into this bizarre structure. And it's an insane feeling because you're like, how do we all know this? Yeah. How do we all know it? And it gets us back to this Bjork quote, which is that we know it because it is connected to some myth that we can't name that existed before us. That's why it all feels like we're remembering the same dream because we don't realize how closely myths and old stories interact with our day-to-day life and animate everything. Yes. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, you know, the Joseph Campbell quote where he goes, myths are the collective dream. Like myths. I don't, are- I don't know that specific one, but, but absolutely. I, I just butchered it, but it's like, it's like, we're all having the same dream. And that's what, a, that's what a myth is. That's why yes. these stories resonate. But what I love, I love every, I just want to frame everything you just said. It's just absolutely right. Be a huge frame. It would be a <laughs> huge rambling, non- rambling nonsense in a huge frame. <laughs> I'd still frame it because it's like when I'm writing alone, when I'm writing a, a script, I guess one of our jobs is to keep your antenna clean. You know what I mean? It's like meaning your gut. Like that's right. right that's right. right, right. right. And for some reason that's wrong. And I've said this a million times, but like when I was working with Judd Apatow, I just noticed that like he had such, his, his genius often came down to exactly what you're saying. We're like the example, I give this a million times, but I go, there was an episode of Crashing, Pete's conservative Christian parents come to see him do stand up, and everyone's filthy. And then Pete goes up and then Pete's parents are proud of him. I wanted it to be this little win for my character. And then Judd said, or maybe uh, they didn't like the swearing, but at least those people had a perspective. At least those people had something to right. say. Yeah. And, wow. and you're so just like, kills you. Yeah. Oh, right. oh, like even in that example, my ego's getting in the way where I'm like, exactly. no, what I was doing was better than those people. And he's like, no, those people had been doing stand-up for 10 years. It would be so much more interesting. So when I'm writing now, I've sort of installed the Judd software as sort of like a wizard or like an Oracle type voice that goes like, no, in the dream, it goes this way. Because dreams and entertainment should be surprising. You know, like they should be surprising, but inevitable. Yeah, that's the real secret. They need to be surprising but inevitable. Like it needs to be like, of course, that's what happened, and I'm and I can't believe it. Like that's the real magic feeling. Yeah, that surprising but inevitable. That's what I'll frame because (laughs) you know when you're doing it, you know, I don't want to put any movie down, but like there's there's just so much bullshit that's just doing it. You know why they're doing it. Because that's what other movies did. And sometimes the source material of that movie was another movie. And the source material of that movie was another movie. And it's a a ruminant. It's it's almost like a cow constantly swallowing and then uh, bringing up the same food over and over again. It's human centipede. 
Uh, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Even worse. That's a, yeah. a much more re- revolting example. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I, I wedged trying, it I'm in. I'm trying to use a, a ruminant bovine. And yeah, you're talking about humans being sewed to one another. Yeah. <laughs> As a very well, Canadian American yes. exchange. <laughs> yeah. What is that line? I keep, I think it was in um, Kids in the Hall. They go, I'm Canadian, which means I'm like an American without a gun. Yeah, that, no, you, 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 you're you're giving me a, a a kids in the hall energy. Actually, I can tell that you you must have loved yes. that show. I loved it too. I grew up on it. I grew up on it. That was one of those shows that thank God it was on MTV because I'm watching it and I'm just like, what the what the what is happening? What the fuck right is now? this? I know. Yeah, yeah it was art comedy. Yeah, where's my pen and and like and the and the the homosexual kind of commentary at a time when like I was actively being called gay as an insult almost daily and then there's a yeah. show that's coming at it from this completely now it seems so obvious you know but uh it, i mean the debt we owe your country <laughs> now i point yes, at you that's one of the few that stayed canadian one of the few shows that stayed canadian like they never moved yeah they made it oh the it stayed in canada i thought you just meant yeah. in tone no, yeah. no, 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 no 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 i i think i i think you're you're i i, I just i can't get enough about that surprising but inevitable thing Cause you just don't want to do it for its own sake. Like you don't want to, I've seen things where like, and then the hero explodes or something, you know, like they're, they're doing it just because they want to subvert the expectation, but it also needs to be inevitable. It can't just be surprising. You, well, you can't get away from the myth. You can't get away from whatever the source is, even if you don't know what it is. And yeah. so again, it's very painful, but yeah, you got to follow the dream. And yeah. if somebody says that really isn't in the dream, if one person says it, that's okay. But if everybody says it, then it's like, oh yeah, I'm I, I like what you did. My ego has taken over, and I think I'm smarter than the story. Which again brings us back to BlackBerry. It's like when the ego is, as Ryan Holiday says, it is the enemy. It's this thing that wants, it just wants power and money, and it's very and Tolkien. to be right. Yeah, I always go back to Tolkien. It's like these things we're not supposed to have it. We're not supposed to have. Power. The one ring. Yeah. You're not supposed yeah. to have it. You're supposed to throw it in the fucking volcano. Uh, but we can't. And and then what ends up happening is you watch people turn into to golems and you, you just, I don't know. You make fun of reality TV. I tried to watch the Wahlberger show and I found it existentially disturbing. Oh, really? I, yeah. <laughs> I, I really was like, because when I see people like Mark Wahlberg, you know what really made me want to vomit? And I, I'm really just saying this to hear your response to it, is he's like, there's this scene where he gives his son, and you know, my own psychology is bleeding through in this, but he gives his son, his son is collecting a certain type of baseball card or something, and he gives him something that, was, you know, he bought him every card. No kid should ever have this. Yeah. He just right. gives yeah. them, the, and the kid's just going through like a, a filing clerk and finding the cards he wants. And in the same scene, Mark Wahlberg is talking about how he wishes he could be home more. But he's like, but I can't. I got to go do this movie. I, you know, I could, I'm doing this movie. And it cuts to him doing the movie. And he's on a motorcycle and he has like a blade style sword in his back. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Would you, does that bring up anything for you? I'm just like, here's something. I'm going to give you this summation. I've tried to do this as stand up, it never works. I go, I will never say to my daughter, everything I do is for you. Fuck that shit. 
I, I'm modeling to her the the value and the joy of pursuing your dream and fulfilling it, but I'll never put the burden on them or the lie, the bullshit on them that I'm like, I wish I could be home more. I could have not done this movie. Are you of fucking course. nuts? Right. I, and yeah, I'm not you're... even bragging about having enough money to pay the bills. I'm just saying like, eat fucking shit. I can't stand that stuff. And it's, I'm it's so horrible. Like, yeah, go ahead. It, it, well, I was going to say this is bringing up two, two great ideas that, that, uh, that are, are surrounding the same world. The first one is, you know, you think that what that's doing is putting a burden on your kid in many ways, what they're doing is sanitizing their own reputation. I am such a good dad because yeah. of this. Yeah. I am such a good person because of this, but it reminds me of this great quote about Steve jobs. His daughter said, um, on his deathbed, what Steve was saying to her was, oh, I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time to spend with you, right? And her response to that was, you just would have worked. Oh, you just would have worked. And of course, isn't this just the truth that at the end of our lives, we all want more time to do the things that we wish we had done. And this is such an absurd fantasy. It makes absolutely no sense. All you have is time and you choosing how you use it now is what's important. And so you, you watch you this kind of- You just would have worked. The, you just would have like, worked. It's like a gangster movie or something. Is it crazy? It's an unbelievable quote. And between these two figures who are so powerful, right? Mm. Steve Jobs on his deathbed. I mm. wish I had more time to spend with you. I know you, you just would have worked. Like what he's talking about is time in a mirror universe or a pocket universe where there's no Apple, where I have no responsibilities, but you can't escape yourself. Yeah. Um, Dude, I have everything to say, but please keep going. (laughs) Well, you you said that this was you um, uh, self-pathologizing yourself in a way. and uh, Well, you see what I'm adverse to. Like I'll die before that become i'll have another problem but it won't be that well because you don't want i I see this with people who are not in show business a lot of fathers one in in particular that i'm thinking of where there is a kind of i'm doing all this my identity is i suffer so that my kids can have what they want right and that that's almost a cliched archetypal father Mm. and without realizing oh What's really going on here is you're behaving in a way where you feel as though you're bulletproof to all criticism for how you behaved as an actual dad. That's it. That's like, exactly you, it. Right. Were you there for your kid in the way that they needed you to be? Or did you sublimate all of that to, I work hard. And because I work hard and I make those sacrifices, that's what I did. But of course, you're not admitting, oh, my job's my identity. I I love going to work. I love getting out of the house. I love not having the responsibility of being at home with these kids. And isn't it great that I can come home with a whole pack of baseball cards with, which cost me essentially nothing that no other dad could afford, but I can't afford because I'm so lucky. And that is going to almost expunge the record of all the times I missed a baseball game, et cetera. And the thing that I was thinking of when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're talking about this, this kid who all of a sudden is given so many sports cards that he doesn't know what to do with what you don't realize as a parent you're doing 
is you're essentially destroying that hobby for your kid. It's like it's like the it's like the smoke the whole pack punishment for when you catch a kid smoking. You do not want, especially a young boy, to give them access to everything that they want because they've destroyed their exploration. Yeah. Right? It's like if you're playing Pokemon. It's like why don't you just take my cartridge? I've got all 150 Pokemon. You yeah. can play with all of them right now. Well, congratulations, you just killed Pokemon yeah. for this kid. I like, played uh, Borderlands with Steve Ag, and Steve Ag was uh, way higher level than me, and I thought it would be fun. And now I'm collecting all the guns that I was doing all of the searching around for, and I, and then I just stopped playing Borderlands. I was like, this this fucking sucks. Right, the, whole point, the whole point, the whole point is ruined. Every video game I've ever played, I, my my favorite part of it is in like the however you want to analogize this, but the level one to level 10 of it, where mm-hmm. you're just getting the bare minimum to get by. And then all yes. of a sudden, because I'm such a, I'm like Mike Lazaridis, like Jay Baruchel's character in the movie. I'm such a power gamer, such a perfectionist. That I'm like, no, no, I've got to do this perfectly. Got to do this great. And then as soon as I figured out the absolute best way to do something, I'm like, I can't play this game anymore Yeah, because I've explored it. There's no, yep. I can't get, there's nothing, there's no, there's no, there's no fresh territory. I know. I always start over. I, I just started over uh, Shadow of Mordor because I'm I have all this downtime here. And then it was like I realized that I, I saw had... that game. That game seemed amazing. It's you, you play a ranger in that game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That it game, is... I saw somebody playing it. It looked incredible. It is incredible. And the part that's the best is they drop you off and you know, in Mordor, and you're weak as shit. You don't know what you're doing. And yeah, you right. keep getting killed, and that's the best part of the game. At a certain right. part, you get so powerful and so good that it that nothing boring. can kill you. Yeah. It's the same as Breath of the Wild. Like the the best part of Breath of the Wild is the first ten hours, and right then, when you're on the plateau, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're out, and you realize the world is so big, and you're like, oh my god, this game's incredible. And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to find every shrine and become invincible. Yeah, and you you've basically gamified yourself. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. It, it, it's it's so sad. <laughs> it is sad, and and there's something about life that it goes back to what we were saying about people don't. Somebody, my friend James um, James Bashara, who's a an incredible CEO, angel investor, just brilliant tech guy. He was like the level of consciousness, meaning the the mindset that brings you to success, is I'm paraphrasing, is not the type of consciousness you need to enjoy it or to even experience it. So you get the opposite. Yeah, exactly. So, and and we watch this over and over and over people could even win the lottery and they're like, Oh, I'm going to stay in my neighborhood. I'm going to pay off my house. I'm going to pay off my friend's house. They don't do any of that. They, you're always going to put yourself in the hole so you can keep playing the game or wanting something new. It's a real shame. What else, what also this, what also this brought to mind was I was like in our old house in LA, I was like, I'm going to get a a new bathtub. I was like, I just, I just want to get a new bathtub. We're going to take out this bathtub and put in like, I'm a big guy, put in like a big fuck off tub. It wasn't a fancy house at all, but I was like, I'm going to have like a nice sanctuary bathtub. And then a couple days went by and I took a very small dose of LSD. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not enough to trip, but enough to, I, I think microdosing LSD is very interesting because you can take a low amount and it has a very nice anti-anxiety, kind of a, a presence. presence. It makes you more present, makes you a, li- a little bit more 
uh, open. And I ended up in my pants, which is like an LSD cliche. I got in the tub in our upstairs bathroom, which I had never used. And I was having a great time. It wasn't a drug scene in a movie where I'm like giggling and drooling. It wasn't embarrassing. It's very, it's just warm water. Yeah. Yeah. I was just sitting there in warm water and it was incredible. I was really like, like Gilgamesh coming back. I was right. Exactly. You didn't realize the kingdom you had. Oh my God. Hot water on demand. What percentage (laughs) of the world am I in of humanity? Am I in that? And I wanted to do it in my pants because I wanted to see what that would feel like. I wanted to see what a bath in my pants would feel like. And I had this micro epiphany, which doesn't really, you, I, I needed the experience. You couldn't just tell me this. I need to experience it. Almost as like voice came to me that was like, you don't want a new bathtub. You, you want, want to be able to appreciate baths. You want to be able, you want to have an openness, a spaciousness and a curiosity yes. Yes. and aliveness. So Steve Jobs, didn't want time with his daughter. He wanted the ability to do the things that he wished he could do. And, and the problem is the type of drive that it takes to find to be the founder of Apple cuts you off from destroy. That. Jesus would say, getting Jesus here, what good is it to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Right. Your soul meaning soul is a fancy word for your base, spacious, limitless awareness. It's its just what's looking out your eyes. Or when you close your eyes, it's this field within which everything appears. But the qualities of that awareness, when we explore it, doesn't resist anything. It, it, it's open and flowing. And it's like having a dream and realizing you're dreaming. If you've ever had a lucid dream, everything becomes so amazing. And if we can do that in our waking life, next thing you know, with or without drugs, I've done it both ways, Next thing you know, you're taking a bath, but you're actually fucking taking a bath. You're right. It's it's again to use this metaphor that we carted about five times at the beginning of this conversation. It's like being a kid again. Yeah. Where everything is optimism, everything is happening for the first time, and you're you're at level three in the yeah, game. And you're yeah. like, I have the whole game ahead of me. Oh my God. And you and you have this feeling of I want to get so good at this game. And that's only to why- realize. By yeah. the end, you get so good that you're like, oh, I don't want to play anymore. But that's why you have to be born again, which is is sort of the Christian mythology. But the other traditions would say you have to die before you die. You have to like drop it. So yeah. Ramdas would say he's coming from the Buddhist Hindu tradition. You have to be somebody before you can be nobody. So that's kind of what happens to Glenn's character is he becomes somebody and then you can tear it down. So the irony is, I can't say to my daughter, she's five. So we're walking around Winnipeg. We made like a fucking A plus 10 out of 10 classic family memory. And all we did was walk one city block with a five-year-old in the snow because she does not have any concept of my feet will be cold later. I will be wet later. She's just like, there's snow now. Yeah, and she, now. she jumped in every pile and I, and we're doing it too. We're just doing it with a little more resistance. I'm making snowballs and I'm like, uh, my hands are going to be cold and wet, but we're following her lead. But here's what I was going to say. I can't stop her from becoming somebody because that's, you have to become Gilgamesh and then leave the kingdom and then come back to it. That's, again and again and again and again and again and again and yeah. again. 
That's yeah. death yeah, that, and resurrection. That that's that. yeah. Like it's the revivifying pattern of life, which so many people basically abandon because they're so afraid to leave their kingdom. Yes. Right? They, they just they just can't they just can't do it. Again, I mean, I'm, I, we're describing my whole country here, but yeah. And th- but then that's the the odd hidden grace of suffering. So my wife left me. This is my famous little suffering story when I was 28. But what I didn't know was I was on the course to that long gray line of the quiet life of desperation like that that was and she saw it so she got out you know she gave me this thing that i never would have wanted never would have asked for and then it disrupts you so like now i i i i can lose sleep wondering like what would have happened if i hadn't had that what seemed like a tragedy so do you see what i'm saying like we don't want death we don't want death we don't want death any type of death, psychological or otherwise. And then when we're confronted with it, it can often lead you to, like Stephen Pressfield, I'm all over the place because I'm all lit up. But Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art talks about people that get a diagnosis and and they're very ill. So they decide like, fuck it, what am I doing working at Dunder Mifflin Paper Company? I'm going to quit and I'm going to write that thing that's been on my heart to write. Like they know what their purpose is, and then he says, I've heard it a million times. They quit, they move to the, the little cabin and they write their thing. And then the disease goes away. I know it sounds like snake oil. I'm not saying that's a cure-all, but that there does seem to be a yearning of this, of reality to express itself. I forget who said it. Um, Eternity is in love with the creation of time. It, it wants to play. My daughter's name means the play of the universe. It wants to create and explore. And when you resist that and you're blocked, isn't it weird that that there is a, a, a force that like, without getting too woo, that wants to play? Well, look, that isn't that what they all the old Greeks they used to call the four humors? And if one was out, that's what made you sick. It was like there used to be a very close connection between wow. your behavior, your dreams, the things you did in your life, and your physical health mm. all the time. Yeah, I think but that's it's why these these archetypes are so easy to spot. You see some crooked old man hunched over walking around, so like Scrooge-like, and you're like, I guess this this guy seems somewhat unfulfilled. <laughs> it seems like he's he's resentful and didn't get the things that he wanted. It's and then like we all manifest our own story, whether we want to or not. And what happens to Scrooge is he's disrupted by essentially death. Death, like, yeah. exactly. And exactly. we have that with near death experiences. We have that with breakups. We have that with losing jobs. And it is, it does seem to be a huge part of the cosmic joke is we say it all the time on this podcast, but what you want is on the other side of what you don't want. Joseph Campbell said, the thing you want is in the cave you're afraid to go. Exactly. And in the filth, in the filth, it will be found. Is what the, is, is that? The, that's, that's the, that's the um, uh, Latin term of this, of where, where Joseph Campbell got that idea. I don't know how to say it in Latin, but it's in the filth, it will be found. Wow. That's the English translation of it. I've heard that, that like the orchid grows in shit and all that sort of stuff. It's like, but, but we still, we still avoid it because it's so, it's so much, um, well, it's not in keeping with our, um, pleasant and, uh, uh, everybody now is almost like a person of the court. You know, mm. everybody has, we have such decadent lives. We eat better food than kings and queens did even 50 years ago. Like everything is just 
we we're, we're indulged to the point where we don't even want ever want to know pain. So I love exercise. It's one of the other things I discovered as an adult mm. is exercising to the point where you're in in extreme pain as often as possible, just so you can get close to yep. that feeling of of Glenn does it too, which is one of his great. Uh, uh, well, one of the things that makes him great at what he does is that he's he's not afraid of pain. Well, that it's funny that everyone who listens to the podcast knows I'm going to bring up cold exposure, but I do I do cold exposure. You don't have to do that in Canada, but I take cold showers and stuff. And there's something really mythically great. Meaning, it's an amazing feeling. It's a microcosm too of going like I don't want this, and you do it, and your body. What does it do? It gives you all these feel good. Chem- it's, it's, it's what I'm saying. Everything you want is on the other side of something you don't want. And exercise is this like little representation of that idea. But that's for everything. Like you sucking at stand up and propelling you. You don't get propelled harder into film if you didn't suck at stand up. So you had to like. That's for sure. That's for sure. But you know, I could turn that on its head as well and say, oh, wow, maybe I was supposed to be a stand up comedian, but was too afraid to pass through this threshold of humiliation. And if only I had, then God knows what my mm. life would have been, you know? Yeah. That, yeah, my, my, I, when I was a kid, I was my big dream. I saw that documentary comedian. I'm not sure if you ever saw it. Uh, it was one of my favorite. Yeah. One of my. I'm telling you, I watched yeah. this movie so many times as a kid. Yeah. I know every line that Orny Adams says in that thing. Like I was obsessed with that movie, and I thought I can do this. And uh, boy, oh boy, did it ever destroy me! But I think you were obsessed with the that that movie works again because it has a mythic thing going on. It, big it's time. A, it's a hero's journey. People have said that like. Um, Colin Quinn is like Han Solo, uh, you know, um, <laughs> Jerry is like Skywalker. Unfortunately, Cosby, I know is like Yoda, but there's yeah, these but like, there, I know. Yes. Uh, that even in a documentary, which as you know, is, is so painstakingly constructed is following a pattern that you were like, dude, I moved to New York because I watched that movie. I was in Are Chicago. You I was in Chicago. Uh, yeah. I watched it. And like within six months, I had moved to New York because I was like, and if I'm, I wouldn't have phrased it this way now, but I was like, okay, there seems to be an amount of shit pain that I have to eat. And it seems like there's an all you can eat buffet in New York. <laughs> uh, well, Jerry says it so well with that story about those construction workers in the documentary where he says he sees these construction workers walking back after lunch and he has this epiphany after he's just been fucking around, not writing, just kind of twiddling his thumbs. And he goes, what am I doing? These guys don't want to go back to work, but yeah. they're doing it. Yeah. Why can't I summon up even one tenth of the dedication that these guys have to me to sitting in a room writing jokes? This really changed my life i still don't live up to the work me neither me neither not even close two things i put a picture that i printed from the internet of construction workers by my bed because of that quote really wow i'm amazed that we've 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 stumbled on this common ground (laughs) to be honest (laughs) i almost bought a um one of those punch card clock in clock out things for my desk which is a cute idea but I'm glad I didn't do it. That was kind of dumb. But I, I wanted like a record of how much time I had been at my desk. That was a little too type A for me. But that had that much of an effect on me. I still try to do it. Now I've gotten a little bit more lenient, meaning I know my process and I'm curious about yours well enough to know that if I sit down, some days I set aside just to write 
and I sit down and I can just tell it's a hard no. Like the to go back to the muses, like uh, the Greeks, the muse just isn't there that day. I know Stephen Pressfield would be like, just shut up and fucking do it anyway. But I just will, I'm very lenient. And I know three nights ago, I went to bed and I, I'm working on this idea and I went to bed and it was so inconvenient, but ideas just kept waking me up. And right, I was like, yeah. I'm again, going back to the antenna, I'm trying to live with a clean enough antenna that whenever it comes through, that's you don't when I'll show it. up. Yeah. Yeah. You don't deaden it. Yeah. I, I, I would say we're still, we're similar in that way in that, like if, if it's there, I'm writing. I, I really struggle with procrastination in a major way. I'm such a perfectionist and putting anything on paper, I'm just faced with, obviously it's death versus what I have in my head. And I really suffer with that like in, in a major way, but I spend a lot of time alone. Uh, like I spend a lot of time here and I spend a lot of time in very much like this conversation now, inventing work through conversation and and disguising my writing in pitching or disguising my writing in just just conversation between friends so i can't tell you the number of pitch meetings i've been in with strangers where i have written the entire movie in the course of pitching it to them and there was no idea before the pitch began and this has happened to me <laughs> over over 12 times and it'll what? be done and i'll be like oh yeah oh my god you have no idea because you, you needed no the pressure see you are because like a stand-up you need the audience there to make it audiences are everything to me i audiences are everything to me it makes a huge huge difference so you would so, start pitching talking out of your ass and at the end of with the nothing pitch, like with nothing yeah with nothing with nothing yeah with nothing did that at BlackBerry? Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Because we knew uh, I had been given the book, didn't read it, was brought in to pitch it like, okay, so what are you going to do? And I just started talking and then oh, these basic ideas just came out. I knew who the characters were and that's it. But I'm telling you, the movie you're watching is that, is that the manifestation of that, whatever I said in that room. Woo! Yeah. But the thing oh. is, you know, you, 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 you like it, it happens you know, it's like, it's like lightning strikes and then you still got to build out around it. And that, yeah. and that, that takes a while, but, uh, Dude, but that's we all. Are, I, again, I've said this three times. I don't want to flatter myself, but I'm very similar. In fact, a big problem for me. So the show I'm, I'm working on right now, very simple idea, small idea. And I can tell I did, I pitched it. I wasn't planning on pitching it to an executive and I start talking about it. And as I'm talking about it, I'm like, oh, it's kind of coming together. Wait a minute. This is actually pretty good. This is pretty <laughs> good. Great feeling. Yeah. Great but feeling. But then in the refinement, talk about losing the patient on the operating table. I'm like, I don't want to ruin it by saying too much about it. Cause I, I kind of want to leave it. This is a series, not a movie. I want to leave it room to grow. That's also something Judd taught me is he's like, we don't know. You shoot the, he's Judd, so he gets to say that. But like, you shoot the pilot, me and this guy have a great chemistry. So now he's a major character. Like, that's, that's kind of how he right, did it. Right, 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 right. So I don't want to like polish it to perfection 
Because then they really know what the show is, and then they'll say no if they don't. Like it. I, dude, you're speaking. This is what I say all the time. I'm I, like, there's nothing worse. I'm always saying whenever we're going into pitch something or talking about something, it's like we better not work. We better not know all these answers because if we know them, then there's no room for the imagination of the executives. Yeah. Like they need to think that this is going to be like the best possible version of what it is. And as soon as you write it into a script and you're like, no, no, no this is exactly what it's going to be. This is exactly what season one's going to be. You leave, like leave a little space for the, for the Holy ghost, you know, as they say, <laughs> leave a little, leave a little space. God, I love this. So similar. Okay. Let's wrap this up. We've taken, I hope I'm not helping you progress, procrastinate currently. Oh, certainly. A, yeah. Couple, um, couple easy ones. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> a couple easy ones. Have you ever seen a ghost? When I was a kid, I didn't I didn't see it, but I was you'll never believe this, but I was at my computer. I'm 15 years old and I'm like, "Oh, I imagine there's some creature just outside the window." You know, I was just playing little games with myself. I imagine there's some creature out there. It was like 2 in the morning. And then all of a sudden, literally at my windowsill, I hear the most like stygian abyssal shriek like the shriek and it was like it was like from like three feet from my head like the shriek of in retrospect it must have been a dying bird or something like that but i i didn't i went right to bed i just got in the bed and lay down and went to sleep and it was after i had thought oh i think there's something spooky out the window but i, wow. I would play games with myself like that all the time but it truly did happen exactly like that this shriek this like i mean i can't even reproduce it. did you freak so out you, well, yeah. Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. Now I didn't scream, but I was like, Oh you my froze. God. And then I, I, I got up and, and just went into the bed. I turned yeah. off EverQuest. See, yeah. tell me when you're making movies, just keep this in mind in your unconscious. You don't have to remember it. But like, I remember I was going to break up with a girlfriend that I really cared for, but it just wasn't, I could tell it wasn't right. And I really didn't want to break up with them. And I was getting in my car. I was leaving my friend's house where they had coached me through it. Tell me if this doesn't sound like something I'd pitched you for a movie and you'd be like, it's a little on the nose. It happened. I got out of my friend's house, dark LA street, walking to my little rental car. And I heard, I still don't know what it was, but it was like the sound of a dying animal. It might've been a coyote or something, but I had never heard all the wonderful words you just were used. It sounded like primordial. And it was just yeah. sort of like howling in pain, clearly dying. Something was dying. And I just stood there. Tell me if that's not, you know, we crane up Manif yeah, and we right. cut to Man black. Like, cause that's how I felt. I felt right. like I was watching a dying animal and I had to put it out of its misery. And then I heard a dying animal that needed to be put out of its misery. I was like, life is oh, synchronicity. Yeah, synchronicity. synchronicity. Yeah. And this is a dream. Like this, this is a dream. Like themes are here. Like metaphors are here like it, it just became so clear to me in that moment yeah what right exactly that we're getting messages from yeah. the other side uh and then but no i've never seen a ghost no ghost a ufo i keep looking up here in canada it seems like no no i'm a, i'm a disbeliever in 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 ufos in a major way in a major way even um, now yep even now even now i, I don't I, understand I, what do you think is going on they keep coming out with this footage yeah, look, I we're um, having the opposite of a Joe Rogan experience, right? <laughs> I I think that uh, that people are desperate to find. Um, but again, I think this is so connected. P 
people are desperate to try to make sense of the world as it is. And there have always been creatures at the border of a known territory back thousands of years. Like there's always there's yeah, there's always the territory, and there's the dog-faced monster that lives in the land next door. There's always this thing just outside the known that is coming to destroy us, that is evil, that is what magical, that is bringing secrets. This is never going away, and aliens are just the current skin of that. Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, I wish that they were real, but they are just the manifestation of human beings being so like, we, there is something outside our borders. When you see a, a Tic Tac flying and making a right turn and all that. That's a bug. That's a bug. That's a bug. And, the, and, the, and the, a bug. it's a bug. And unfortunately, the way lenses work is they're making it seem much closer than it is. It's a bug with light on it <laughs> that is turning such a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any feelings? We've talked a lot about myth and and quoted some interesting folks. Do you have any feelings about life, like a big story for life? What's going on here? If it's religious or God or spiritual? Oh, actually, or... you mean yeah, you, in terms of like a like 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 a truly religious, like a um, it doesn't have to be religious, but is there a story or a framework that you put? Like what's going on here? You know, I, I'm I'm Adams, and I know I'm me, and you're Adams, and you know you're you. Consciousness, I, I think that that whether like by by pure accident, we are the descendants of like a, a species that only learned to make sense of themselves through stories, and those stories became so unbelievably powerful that we are who we are because of the power of those stories because of this singular story of oh i heard about this guy who went out into the darkness and he killed this thing that was killing us and he came back with all of this gold and i knew him and this guy was crazy and and we should all try to be like him i believe that that story is like wound up in our dna and that we cannot get away from that, and so any manifestation of any religious thought um, or anything that has numinous meaning, like or whenever you feel connected to whatever you believe God to be, is your reuniting with those original stories, yeah. whatever they may be, and, there, and there's hundreds of them, and and they're cross cultural. It doesn't matter who you are. We could take people from any walks of life, and they would have that same. Like we were in a dark place, there was an unknown territory, and one person went into it, and they came back alive. And now we love that guy. Mm. So, so I think that we are basically we are the descendants of these people. We're we're the, we're the Canaanites. We are the Canaanites, and uh, and we can't uh, we can't get away from that as much as we try. We can't we can't escape that. And, uh, and it's why I'm also have a very dim view of of AI and uh, and cyborgs and 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 the notion that one day we'll be in the matrix and robots will be fooling us that they themselves like I, I don't think any any robot will ever pass that Turing test where we we believe that it is a human and that makes me seem very naive but you know you can I I make films and when somebody's bad when somebody's bad at acting. It's so obvious. Mm. It's like they just don't work. And I've always said, if aliens do come to find us, the one job that a human being would be better at than, than anything else 
would be spotting other human beings. We are so good at it. We're all masters at understanding if something is human or not. And if aliens came to find us, we'd be amazing border guards at their planets to not letting or letting in human beings. Because we'd be like, that's not a human. What are you talking about? Get lost. You're not even close. And I feel like that's exactly what what uh, what is going to happen with with uh, with these AI cyborgs. I think. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's very interesting. So even the idea that do you see the same sort of storytelling at play when Elon Musk will very casually say like, this will be our God. Like we're making like a, a like mission. a tower of Babel. Yeah, it is Babylonian, isn't it? E, e, Not Babylon. Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to be totally honest. It, like, I don't, I don't know what he was referring to in that instance. I, yeah. uh, yeah, I, like I have no idea, but I, I think that no matter what, we're always going to have to return to these basic stories. We have no choice. We have no choice. It, it's interesting too. Like, with AI, you know, the SAG strike had all that AI stuff. They're going to AI Brad Pitt into movies after he's dead and all that sort of stuff. It is interesting to consider that like a cutscene in a video game, like there just will be something sort of off about it. Like, it will, there'll be uncanny valley everywhere. Yeah. 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 The, other, the other thing that <laughs> the other thing that you brought up, I agree with you that metaphor is the only way to talk about God for lack of a better word. But do you think there's something that they're pointing to, or is it just straight materialism? You know, I'm not a materialist. No, I I, I used to be in a, in, a, in a major way. And I used to be like, like actually I'm pretty utilitarian, but like thinking that that's all there is and, and, and life is kind of a cosmic joke. I don't believe that that's true, but, but that's... Like I am not mature enough or sophisticated enough yet to unpack that. I know that getting back to that idea of lying and me realizing, oh, no matter what, I shouldn't lie. Like I, even if I get away with it, I don't get away with it. It's like there is a way of being that is ideal that I should be striving towards. And that speaks to some kind of, you know, like a like a like a like an uh, well to use that same word like a kind of ideal that i can't i can't i can't quantify i can't i can't uh, mm. like i can't explain um but and, and yeah who knows like the idea that mm. this just happened by pure luck you know there's an idea in in uh another evolutionary biology idea that like the very fact that something exists is itself like you can define an environment just by finding an organism. I'll give you a good one um, that our planet is, this is, I think is something that Elon Musk is probably interested in. Our planet is the exact size to allow space travel off of it. If our planet was much bigger, the gravity would be so strong that no amount of fuel that you could create from the periodic table would allow you to send a jet into space. Mm. So in some ways, it's almost like we must be destined to leave this planet simply because it is the size that allows rocket propulsion to leave. Right. And if we were bigger, it couldn't, we just couldn't. And as something about it being smaller also, it couldn't work again. I'm a total, I know nothing about this, yeah. but it's, 
it's like we are trying to find meaning in in the fact that we exist, but we exist and therefore we must be in an environment that has allowed us to be this way. Look, I see what you're saying. At a certain level, I'm like this is not my job. I don't. I, I, I I'm trying to stay ignorant of these things um, so that I can uh, so that I can ignore them. Same with politics. But uh, but I, I my my perspective on these things changes the older I get, and I realize oh, it seem things seem to be connected in a way that I didn't appreciate when I was younger. Hmm. I love that. I'm, you've said so many things I'm never going to forget. Uh, I can't, Bullshit. Pro- I can't promise no way that. you remember. Half I can't of promise yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't promise that. Um, dude, I loved every single part of this. There's one last question. Uh, can you tell me a time in your life? It doesn't have to be a great story where you laughed so hard. You thought you were going to puke or you were crying just like a great laugh moment of your life. If one comes to mind. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you know that when you're working on things like this with your friends, you laugh all the time. And so, yes, a time that I laughed so much that I thought I was going to puke. Not even puke. It could be when you were a kid. The prompts I usually give to help. And remember, it doesn't have to be an amazing story. Like you open the door and there's John Travolta. It's just like somebody fell Somebody farted. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like you were in church. You were in a place you weren't supposed to laugh. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. I'll tell you one. And it was me personally just laughing on my own. And I couldn't believe what was happening. And said I had a great <laughs> friend named, named Ben Taylor who was loved food, but he was completely broke. He was a master's student. And he loved going to fancy restaurants. And he always comes to Toronto. Um because he was doing his PhD in some cardiovascular something or other. And he'd always want to go to these super fancy dinners, super fancy. And I would always pay for them because he had no money. But And I didn't know anything about food. So it's like, that's kind of what we're giving one another. He'd pick these restaurants and I'd pay for the bill. Okay. Anyway, we did this about a dozen times and I'd spent so much and I'm broke, right? Like I'm, I'm just a, like a jobbing filmmaker. And so I don't have money, but he is fully willing to have me pay for these extravagant meals for himself. And we never really talked about it. It's just one of those things that I fell into a trap of gratitude, of sorry, of uh, of generosity. Yeah. So he gets a job at McKinsey with his PhD and becomes insanely wealthy, insanely wealthy. And he comes back to Toronto. He's like, Maddie, I haven't seen you forever. We're gonna go to we're gonna go to one of these dinners. And I'm like, that sounds great. You pick the spot. I'll meet you there. So we go to one of these places. It's insanely expensive as always. And the bill comes in. I, out of just kind of you know politeness, I reach for it. And the waiter's there. And Benny goes, No, Maddie, come on. You've taken me out to dinner so many times. I finally got money. We're not doing that anymore. And he takes the bill and he looks at the waiter and goes, We'll split it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just died. I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe it. Like I thought this was so so funny. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, surprising cool. but inevitable. But inevitable. Yeah. Yes, surprising <laughs> but inevitable. And uh, I, I was watching it happening right before me. And he wasn't joking, right? It was no a way. sincere. No way. He was like, no way. But that's what made that's what made it so funny. He's my dear friend. In fact, he's the reason I became a filmmaker. Is that he had made a video for French class in grade seven that I saw with him and his older brother on VHS, and I didn't know people could do this. And I watched this in class, and I was like, insanely jealous. Obviously, yeah. it was so funny. Everybody's laughing in hysterics. I was pissing my pants watching this video. And I was like, this isn't fair. I didn't yes. know that, I didn't know we were allowed to do this. And that's what began my filmmaking. Jealousy. 
The truest compliment. The truest compliment. I love that so much. We should end, but you reminded me in high school, again, me and Ern made, they gave us an assignment and they made the mistake of saying it could be like a poster board presentation. It could be a video. video. And we were like, oh my God. And we made a commercial for dirt. Oh, great. Still. That's yeah. that's fine. It had to be about like some element or something. And of course it was just nonsense. And we're talking about how you can make it into mud and it's so yeah, all dumb. the different purposes of it. Yeah, grow grow vegetables. What's what better a, than dirt? Yeah. What a gift the 80s yeah. were that camcorders kind of existed, that you could do stuff like that. It, it changed yeah. my life. Same with me. Yeah. Cheap, cheap and ubiquitous home video. Yes. Oh God, buddy! I I admire you so much. Everybody, go see Blackberry and 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 watch Nirvana the band the show. Anything else you'd like to plug? No, no, not at all, Pete. This was a total total pleasure. Uh, like I, I, I I I can't believe where this conversation uh, took me. I uh, I know. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> I'm like in a funk today. That was what I was going to say to you as well. Is like I just woke up today and I won't. I'll spare you the details, but I was just sort of like, ugh. Just didn't feel like myself. And then when I was watching your stuff and I started laughing, this is exactly what you hope, isn't it? Like I kind of started to remember myself and uh, yeah. remember life and laughing and and then talking to you lit me up again. I, I was a little bit nervous. I was like, I just don't feel like the guy that has a podcast today, but I couldn't have been more excited to talk to you. And and it, it that completely changed. Uh, through this conversation. So thank you. Well, vice uh, versa. Yeah. Thanks, man. Would you, um, God, I'm so glad you said that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Would you say, uh, keep it crispy, which is how we end. It's just the sign off. You say, keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. There it is. There it is. Keep it crispy. <laughs>